The popular conception of the special forces soldier parachuting in behind enemy lines and single-handedly taking on entire divisions under extreme duress is one promoted by Hollywood and tacitly endorsed by the Pentagon. Given some of the more successful missions, such as in Panama, and the more infamous ones, such as Desert One, this reputation is indeed valid, yet it paints an incomplete picture of SF's much larger role in a general force multiplication strategy of indigenous forces where conventional U.S. forces cannot be deployed. Tonight we are fortunate to be joined by two highly experienced Special Forces soldiers to dispel some of the commonly held misconceptions about their profession and give us a better understanding of the role of counterinsurgency operations from World War II through today. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time dealing. Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, today we have an almost full house. Uh, Nick uh, is with his, his mother, uh, as we all should be at some point today, hopefully, uh, if you have that chance. Uh, and we are also joined by uh, two pretty bad mothers, um, mother effers uh, in the uh, military world. They're special forces qualified. I'll let them explain what that means exactly. But we have from the Rebel Yell um, guest spots a couple times. I was on the last one, but the first time I was so impressed by their breadth of knowledge and their intellect, I just had to ask or invite them to come on and join us on the myth of 20th century to talk about the history of special forces. So tonight we are joined by JT and Old Hickory. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. So I, I guess one way to kick it off is why do we have the special forces? And also, what is a SOF uh, and versus SF? I've always wondered like what the difference is really but maybe we start at the beginning how did this all start uh why why did you or why did your organization uh get uh get built sure so special forces as it exists today is a direct result of an initiative in the 1980s uh, but the concept uh, was born in world war ii through the office of strategic services so the oss as it's called uh, was pretty influential in seeding different organizations that became institutionalized after the war, including the Department of State, the Central Intelligence Aid Agency, and what we know as U.S. Army Special Forces. Uh, it would be for the layman, that's the Green Berets. Um, SOF, SOF, Special Operations Forces, a much larger um, moniker. It includes pretty much any uh, elite force that could go from Rangers to Navy SEALs to Green Berets. Uh, all those are included in that moniker. So that's kind of confusing to some people, but Special Forces was specifically uh, started uh, as an initiative for special operations capabilities in the World War II, uh, Europe and Pacific theaters, both of them, 
to conduct small team operations abroad for strategic effects in, uh, you know, the early parts of the war before we had uh, basically infiltrated large, you know, brigades and larger units than that into the theater. I almost see it kind of as an evolution of uh, the idea of stormtroop tactics. The the transition in thought from the idea that we're going to have just these these massive uh, formations of hundreds of thousands of men and tens of thousands of artillery pieces. And it turns out what you need in order to actually get through that is 20 or so guys, very mobile, armed to the teeth that can go to specific places and do specific things. And, you know, in the World War II context, uh, that sort of tactical uh, employment against uh, you know, these these grand formations in the Western uh, Front uh, was sort of adapted uh, to a strategic context that you would have the same sorts of uh, groups where you know that the Germans that invented the concept were essentially cannibalizing all the best soldiers from all their frontline units to form these very small uh, portions of people that could go and you know go to a specific place and do a specific thing and in a strategic context that's like surprise you're in occupied nazi germany and you've got to go and blow up a bridge or uh you know make contact uh, with some insurgent group or try to get some pilots back home yeah i, I would say the World War II context the global theater was really unique it's really the first time in which the United States found itself needing to conduct operations in a truly global fashion. So what happened was it was almost like a resources calculation. You've got the inability to leverage overt resources across the globe. So the best way to cover down on that is by using indirect application of force or force multipliers or using troops to train local guerrillas and partisans. So you have OSS units in Manchuria. They were the first ones to link up with the Russians. You got OSS units coming in contact with Mao and Ho Chi Minh in China. You got them, you know, doing Jedburgh operations in France. You've got them in the Pacific. It's really, you know, it was almost born out of necessity because special operations, you know, surgical strike operations, even like the classical espionage component of the OSS that became the CIA. That stuff's been going on since warfare was a thing. You know, I mean, special operations history goes back as far as the human historical record. But this kind of fill in the gaps with capabilities where we can't leverage overt resources. In, in World War II, it was, it was necessary. But what happened kind of after that was the U.S. found itself as a global, you know, power, like a, a great power, and needed to be able to exert influence to, you know, in its own terms, stop the spread of communism abroad. And it wasn't always feasible for various reasons, whether capable or desirable, to use overt resources to do that, you know, ground troops, you know, armies, navies, et cetera. So what happened was special forces filled that niche as a, as a quick way to insert, you know, a small amount of troops into a theater, train local forces to do things. It's really desirable to the to the policymaker back home because it's a lot of the times it's not attributable. If it goes bad, it doesn't get pushed back onto the national command authority. It's a very, you know, forward leaning, what we call left of the line, meaning left of overt conflict between our armies and other armies. It's a very, you know, ambiguous operating environment. So <clears throat> special forces historically going back to the OSS and in all the different forms that it, it existed in up until the 80s when it became branched as special forces. 
um, was conducting these types of operations in lots of different theaters from World War II to the Korean War, Vietnam, and then several after that we can talk about if you want. One of the more disgusting uh, incidents from, I think it was the uh, the 2016, I want to say Democratic uh, primaries. Um, it could have been really on either side. They were fairly indistinguishable at the time. But uh, somebody made a remark to the effect that uh, in Syria, we... We don't want any boots on the ground, only intelligence and special forces, which I thought was an, an interesting way of looking at how that particular class of uh, politician conceives of how you actually use these things and these people, frankly. Well, an interesting fact is that we, uh, we wear tennis shoes, unlike conventional boots on the ground forces. No, I'm just kidding, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the CIA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, they Pocket were protectors like protectors and tennis shoes, right? Suede shoes. I don't think yeah, that they get your, get your uh, Crocs on. Yeah, <laughs> I think it, it, that is a good observation because it illustrates just how flippantly uh, soft forces can be thrown around. You know, and it's become so ingrained in the culture of America too that they can get away with that. Uh, Americans expect that at all times your soft forces should be you know lurking in the shadows in all of these places where the u.s isn't technically at war hasn't declared any sort of formal war or policing action famously said in the past right so they can get away with that people are oh oh special forces yeah they should be over there right no, uh, no further scrutiny required uh, in a lot of cases that's kind of an easy easy button for politicians it is just it, seems to have evolved after the Cold War uh, with particular nuclear weapons making full-scale conflict very costly for either side. And it seems the even the Vietnam conflict uh, was considered somewhat of a proxy war between the two superpowers, although the U.S. was directly engaged. Uh, and in the case of, the, of Korea, China did engage. Uh, but ever since then, there seems to have been a reduction in that type of conflict uh, arguably because if you're going up against a superpower, you just don't want to provoke them too much. And so these pinprick sort of plausibly deniable actions seem to be more preferable from a political standpoint at the very least, if not a strategic one. But you guys can comment on that, I suppose, if it's, if it's a better way to fight versus how it was done in the past. No, that's, that's, that's all good. I mean, I would look at Vietnam and say, you know, SF was the first they were the first troops in Vietnam. So when you have this proliferation of nuclear weapons in a cold war um, and you feel like there might be uh, a conflict breaking out that you need to influence uh, SF became the easy button pretty early on. So I say SF got branched in the eighties, but SF became uh, known as SF popularly in the sixties uh, during JFK's administration. And it was after the Bay of pigs, when he was disgruntled with the way that the CIA handled things, um, he went to see SF personally, and and I don't know if you've seen the movie The Green Berets with John Wayne. It's kind of cheesy, but there's an intro scene where it's all the the guys explaining what they do. It's kind of based on that visit. You know, he went there to see like what what is it you guys do? And they told him we do counterinsurgency and unconventional warfare. And he interpreted that as a, a way to counter Soviet expansion without risking nuclear war. Because the Bay of Pigs left a lot of scar tissue uh, in the Beltway with with what we're risking here. So back then, his name was General, General Yarbrough. Um, 
he wore the green beret and met JFK and he wasn't supposed to. It's actually a pretty interesting story because the headgear wasn't authorized yet. But at that point, they kind of had presidential approval to do what they what they did. And even before becoming an official branch in the army, um, you see that SF gets kind of inserted into all these you know, different locations across the globe with nuclear war on the horizon to conduct these operations without risking that overt force-on-force conflict, if that makes sense. I think that's a good example. Well, uh, JFK was uh, particularly, before obviously he was taken out, uh, he he was particularly focused on using, I believe it was the special forces, to train the Vietnamese, South Vietnamese uh, military in order to avoid a full-scale engagement from the U.S. side. And I have some numbers on this uh, from a, a book on the Green Berets, actually. Uh, there were 2,300 special forces in Vietnam leading 69,000 uh, native Vietnamese soldiers, uh, which is about a ratio of 1 to 30, which is pretty impressive uh, how how much, uh, and we, we used the term force multiplier in the last two shows you guys were on in Rebel Yell. I think that's an interesting example of how that concept can be employed without uh, risking too much American uh, American personnel. Yeah, that's that's the intent behind the force multiplication concept is to send you know twenty three hundred is is not a small that's <laughs> not a small investment by any means, but it's a lot smaller than what we ended up sending in in ground troops there. But the the original. I would say another example would be Task Force Dagger after 9-11 in Afghanistan. So that was 11 teams. Each team is about, you know, seven to 12 guys with a couple of enablers attached to them. So you're looking at roughly 300 complete, counting all the headquarters that are, you know, a country away and all the supporting elements. You're looking at roughly 300, 315 guys that partook in the initial two months of that operation. And that was when... We're talking before Operation Enduring Freedom. We're talking about before conventional forces got sent there. Those 11 teams linked up with the different uh, tribes in Afghanistan, created the Northern Alliance, and each individual team partnered with a separate tribe. You know, they demonstrated a little bit of understanding on how tribal dynamics work there that maybe a larger army wouldn't understand. And they used those tribes to fight against the Taliban, which was the official occupying power that was the government of Afghanistan. And the Taliban had armored tank divisions and you know they took these tribes and basically unseated the taliban until the taliban surrendered in early december and then did the kunduz airlift and since we didn't find bin laden at that time you see afghanistan get drawn out in perpetuity and even then beyond after he was found for lots of reasons that are probably worthy of their own episode but the short version is that in concept that that was what it was designed to be was a small force that uses local resources to accomplish a large strategic objective without committing ground troops wholesale. And that's really been manipulated in probably the last like 15 years, I would say. So I I have a technical question. The, the training mission has always seemed a little bit, uh, incongruous, I guess, I guess I could say, um, it's pretty clear to me why somebody who's really good at, uh, or why a group of people that's really good at sneaking into a place and blowing up a bridge would also be really good at sneaking into a place and uh, you know knocking down doors and killing people would also be really good at parachuting into uh, like a like a nuclear missile silo and trying to do a decapitation strike. It's not clear to me why the same group of people would also be really good at like, you know, you've got your Afghan national army or whatever, or, you know, your, 
your Iraqi police and would be really good at, okay, guys, like this end of the rifle is the shooty part. Like, why is the... Why is the that's training mission so uh, bound up? Because my impression is that that's, that's a huge part of what that entire community undertakes. Yeah, so I would say kind of look at it in reverse. That would be my advice to anyone wanting to understand it. So really the core competency of special forces uh, for, for, for a very long time has been the mastery of basic tactics and fundamental you know, combat power, the, the elements of national power, basically. Like how do we do tactics from the very basic battle drills, you know, how do we do organization of combat units and build them up and how do we employ them in combat and how do we, then, then we start to look at concept, abstract constructs like uh, transition, uh, things like counterinsurgency, you know, things like that. But really it's the mastery of the basic tactics that are the bread and butter. So, you know, I don't know if um, I would say the perception that special forces is, you know, some, a bunch of saboteurs running around. I mean, certainly in the OSS days, that's how it was started. I mean, they really recruited multilingual specialists with lots of sabotage, um, like saboteurs, basically that were intelligence operatives and, you know, created these networks and did a lot of really uh, successful operations behind enemy lines. But as SF evolved, especially during the cold war, what you saw was, more of an emphasis upon drawing recruits from the regular army into special forces that had a lot of experience. These are guys that had a lot of infantry experience, a lot of combat arms deployments and and time abroad and even wartime experience and bringing them into SF. And then that way the training mission is really your, it's your foundation. You kind of draw everything off of that. So a green beret uh, is useful if they can train an irregular force to do tactics in a way that, is sound according to their capabilities. You know, we've got to basically take, you know, sometimes it's a, an, like a, I would say an official force, like a, a police force or a national army. Um, if you're doing like a counterinsurgency mission or even just a training exchange, sometimes you'll partner with like an official force and you'll take their tactics, you'll review them and you'll say, okay, here's what we know and here's what we'd recommend you change. Sometimes it's a very irregular partisan force that doesn't know how to pull the trigger. So it's really, um, you know, our tactics are time tested. That's the one thing that, you know, we rely on heavily is that the tactics are the tactics. I mean, there's really only so many ways you can do a battle drill successfully. I mean, technology has created some creative opportunities for us to achieve, you know, battle drill effects, you know, in, in, in different ways. And it's really interesting how that's kind of evolved in recent memory. And I think we've been really good at, you know, what we would call um, like creative solutions on the battlefield or, you know, <clears throat> ingenuity. But really, at the end of the day, your average SF team is just really focused on the field manuals, like the basic tactics, the basic battle drills, the basic organizational characteristics of any functioning army. And that's really where we make our money is taking a unit that doesn't understand that stuff and just helping them do that. I don't know. Old Hickory probably has some some thoughts on that. Yeah, the uh, the phrase that used to get thrown around all the time was by, with, and through. So SF is geared towards working with partner forces of various types, all the way from irregulars and guerrillas up through conventional forces in countries that we're formally allied with or forming an alliance with, um, you know, in the Middle East. We see that a lot with places like Jordan, right? The U.S. has a really strong relationship with them, so we would be the guys to go in and conduct some of that partner training with them. 
and then other cases going back to World War II, you know, you have a limited ability to get U.S. troops on the ground prior to the invasion, the D-Day invasion, right? But it's pretty easy to get highly specialized trainers in to train up French resistance members to, you know, target, do analysis on uh, communications line or lines of communication and uh, figure out a game plan for how you're going to disrupt them once the invasion starts, right? So it's really, when they say force multiplier, that's what they're really talking about. I can send a few guys in, they'll sort of collect the resources that are on the ground in the target country, and they're going to arrange them in a way that can be utilized in greater than the numbers that we deployed, right? So we deployed three-man teams in the Jedbergs, but they could rally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of French resistance members to do certain activities. So uh, I think what JT said about thinking about it in reverse is really important. And it goes back to what's in the the mind of the common American about what special forces is. And a lot of people think, well, yeah, you would be jumping into a, you know, a top secret facility and doing some sort of assassination. But that's not really that's not really the focus of uh, U.S. Army special forces. It is more of a by with and through mentality. And that's that's why the basics and the fundamentals are so emphasized. How would you that's- contrast the deployment of special forces during times when it seems like there's not the political will to send in full force of ground troops and the times where there is a political will behind sending in the army. Uh, I would also uh, like to hear your comments on what you guys think about the so-called Powell doctrine, which is this uh, only go into battle when you have uh, overwhelming uh, force. I'm sure there's more nuanced ways of putting that, but it seems to be uh, his sort of point of view is we shouldn't fight unless we, we have an incredibly uh, overwhelming quantitative chance of just knocking the shit out of the enemy. Uh, as opposed to when we can't go in full force, you have you guys going in even when that doesn't happen. Uh, how do you guys get rolled up into the sort of strategy of the overall army and Navy when there is a full blown war? Like what is the contrast between those two scenarios? I'll tell you what, JT, why don't you take, um, the, the version of the question where there is no appetite for uh, overwhelming force. And then I'll take the second half. Yeah, sure. So that's really, that's really the, the intent behind it all. So, in theory, special forces should be able to go abroad and achieve strategic effects when there is no political will for what we would call an overt war. It's, it's all about getting locals to fight the war in a way that achieves your interests. So you're, you're picking partner forces, you're picking your regulars, you're picking civilians even, and organizing them into a combat force to fight a fight that is going to benefit your nation. It's all for your your interests. It's never about, um, hey, we really want to free these people from communism. We really want to like stop the tyrannical government that's going on in country X. It's it's never about that. It's always about, okay, if we were to fight a war there, here's the things we could achieve, but we can't for whatever reason. So the pal, I, I let old Hickory talk about the pal doctrine, but it's important to understand that the concept that emerged during during that was that we needed to be able to fight like these two wars on two fronts, you know, east and west at the same time. And it's really, you know, that's not that's not really in accord with how our political system works. You know, we don't have a lot of continuity of objectives for very long in D.C., especially militarily. Um, I would say that ever since 
kind of certain interests have entrenched themselves in D.C. What we've seen is definitely a continuity on that front. But in terms of like how commanders approach, you know, their combat theaters and how political leaders view things, there's a it's really not there's really not like a concerted strategic effort that you see through over the course of like 10 to 20 years. And other countries are better at that than we are. So SF is kind of filling these niche gaps where we don't really want to insert ourselves into an overt war. But if we were and there were objectives we could achieve, it's your job to go there, assess the local force, tell us if it's possible, tell if the political climate is even doable, tell if the, it, tell us if the objectives are, you know, we can accomplish them at all. And if we did, would it work in our interest, ours alone? Uh, we don't really care about the force you just trained at the end of the day. It's about what effect they achieve that will help us. And basically, that's kind of the design of it. I mean, I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, so if there is a full-blown like Iraq to a conflict when the U S did literally invade the entire country of Iraq, as opposed to the first Gulf war, where it was basically just kicking them out of Kuwait. Um, what do special forces do in a situation like that, where you guys are rolling tanks through Baghdad? Well, yes. I think this is where the, the Americans kind of popular understanding of special forces becomes sort of a reality, right? Because you, you become in support of uh, large scale conventional operations. So because you're a highly trained, trained small team that usually specializes in certain specific types of missions, right? So in Gulf war one, it was taking out scud missiles, right? So like it's fairly easy to get, eight to 12 highly trained guys in their mid thirties who've been in the military their entire career, uh, especially doing long range desert movements to do something like that. It's a lot harder to get, you know, a, a squad full of 22 year olds on their first deployment to do that. Right. So those kind of specialized, the specialized nature of a special forces team becomes very important and very useful in that regard. And I think too, that, what you see is a shift away from, well, let me, let me talk about the Powell Doctrine real quick, and then I'll kind of answer the Iraq 2 question, right? So the, the Powell Doctrine is, I guess, the, the claim that there's a certain number of questions that you have to answer before you're willing to launch a full-scale scale war, right? Like, is it vital to national security? Do we have a clear, attainable objective? You know, had the risks been analyzed? Well, those questions are things that Special Forces is supposed to be answering, Right. So our, our involvement occurs before you're even going into those questions. And we're gathering that information by working with people on the ground in whatever place of interest. Right. But once those are answered and the or not answered and the invasion is going to occur, then special forces really ends up being a stopgap for uh, skills and resources that the conventional forces can't offer. Right. So a big one for the Middle East would be language capability. If you have a team full of people that can speak the local language and they can live locally with a small footprint and get to understand the people in this part of the city or in this district or in this province, they're going to be able to do that a lot better than a guy sitting in a tank in the middle of Baghdad, right? So it offers you a lot stronger targeting information, collection capabilities. You know, what's going on? What, are the lo what does the local population feel about this? Who are the big time political players? What's going to come? What's going to come after the overthrow of this government? Right? These are questions. They're social questions. They're people questions, economic questions that conventional forces aren't as good at answering because their primary focus is destroying whatever direct 
whatever enemy is in direct confrontation with me right now, right? So once that process has happened and the enemy has been completely destroyed in an Iraq 2 type scenario and you enter that full-blown counterinsurgency operation, that that's where you start to see two different approaches to counterinsurgency ongoing. And actually, this is this is part of a pre-show conversation between, between myself and JT, but counterinsurgency was one of the very early proposed specialties of what became special forces in the OSS period. And it's natural because when you're conducting unconventional warfare, you're creating insurgencies, right, to destabilize or disrupt or overthrow a government of a, a hostile nation, right? So it's natural to sort of think, well, what if it's a friendly country and we want to stop this overthrow from happening? Say Russia is in there agitating and trying to destabilize, but we want to keep it stable, right? So can we not do the same thing in reverse using a similar, similarly small footprint of highly specialized people with localized skills like language and cultural knowledge and things like that, right? So that's the kind of mentality that special forces would bring to an Iraq too, right? But at the same time, now you're in a position where your conventional forces are occupying in massive numbers an entire country, right? And they're having to fight off insurgencies attacking them. And you sort of get parallel problems, right? You have your special forces teams that are generally, not always, but generally more integrated and face a smaller direct threat against their footprint. And, and thus, they don't have to exert as much force. Ideally, they don't exert any directly. And then you have a large conventional force that's being attacked relentlessly. They're a huge, slow-moving target, a great target of opportunity, right? And when they respond, it's very difficult to respond surgically when you're using big weapons, heavy heavy vehicles, and oftentimes young and inexperienced guys. And I don't want to take anything away from the conventional army, which, given the very difficult circumstances they were in, I think did a, a really fantastic job for an unfortunate situation. But... JT, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I would say um, counterinsurgency doctrine is probably one of the single greatest examples you can point to to understand kind of the misutilization of uh, combat elements, especially special forces abroad. So counterinsurgency was a SOF, uh, we'll say, you know, because OSS, but eventually an SF-specific mission. Um, it, it was always uh, SF-oriented. SF were, like I said, the first ones into Vietnam. Uh, the first, you know, they led any kind of counterinsurgency efforts that have taken place uh, in third world situations after that. Um, and then you have mid-Iraq, you're starting to see we're in Afghanistan still. We have been for a few, several years. We've been in Iraq for four years at this point, we're starting to like get into the realm of perpetual war. That's kind of new to, to our nation, uh, like kind of never before seen. And if we're being honest, and at that point you have a new counterinsurgency manual written by conventional forces. So Petraeus and his orbiters rewrote counterinsurgency doctrine. <clears throat> and if you look at SF doctrine going back to the fifties, I mean, you can pull the old guerrilla warfare manuals, it's very, it's stylistically, it's, it's different. You know, it's, it's really to the point. It's not uh, bloviating. It's, it, this is not like a super complicated thing, but it's all about the mechanics of it. And it focuses on achieving effects for us, um, for the United States in these locations through an indigenous entity. 
the counterinsurgency manual, I don't remember how many hundreds of pages it is, but it's almost like a like a dissertation type. You know, it's a really academic, bloviating, o- overblown uh, piece of work that just never really touches on the problems of counterinsurgency. So if someone wanted to really understand how special forces had been kind of manipulated into this unique uh, niche role that it's in now, where it's a perpetual supporting element to a conventional occupation force, coin doctrine is the way to do it. Because we've gone from originally the purpose was we do coin to halt the spread of communism. So we've got a friendly government, like old Hickory said, and there's a communist uprising. So we send in special forces advisors to help that government quell that rebellion. Think of like the battle for Algiers, a really good movie made about it um, that the French did. Uh, That's an example of like a typical Cold War counterinsurgency operation. That was the original intent. Now coin is just basically keeping the population pacified and, you know, quelling rebellion against your own, occupation forces in perpetuity in these combat theaters till the end of time. So it really is the solution becomes the problem becomes the solution becomes the problem. It just repeats itself over and over again. I don't want to negate the doctrinal foundation for SF facilitating follow on conventional infiltration and invasions. That's definitely a thing. Um, going back to, I mean, definitely Panama uh, special forces went in first and facilitated the infiltration of Conventional forces, then again in Desert Storm through special reconnaissance missions, tar- you know, specific targeting operations to to degrade infrastructure that was you know dangerous to to conventional forces. It's definitely a role that's been filled. But now what we've seen is we've gone beyond facilitating the you know the invasion of like a large army into getting there first and staying there together the entire time. And special forces doesn't ever own uh, battle space. You know, you don't really see special forces commanders ever like own a theater. They don't own a mission per se. They're always a supporting element. Uh, if conventional forces are in the combat theater, they're a supporting element to them. So like old Hickory saying, it's really, it's been kind of flipped on its head since about 2007. So there are guys who've done what could be considered a really impressive SF career at this point, who've really never, experienced kind of the way that it was originally designed to work. And they may be under the impression that it's totally normal for SF to just kind of put out fires for the large conventional force that is right down the road from them. Do you think that uh, in some ways contractors are used similarly just to put out fires for large force deployments or put out fires after the large force deployments end? I mean, I know contractors are becoming uh, ubiquitous in Iraq and Afghanistan now and parts of Africa and a lot of those guys are former special forces. Um, do you think that that is sort of just the general modus operandi of U.S. military command now is to utilize uh, special forces, either private or part of the U.S. military, as a way of permanently putting out uh, fires that never really seem to go away? Well, uh, the Blackwater guys were officially and unofficially i i have no idea but uh, i can only assume that there may have been some unofficial activities but officially they were supposed to be in logistics primarily uh, and also guarding uh, facilities now you guys were there but you may not be able to comment on some of this but i i, I think what hans is getting at is there is this um, special forces private pmc approach 
worldwide, maybe not in Iraq as much because of all the scrutiny that the American press and politics was putting on it. But in places like Africa, that does seem to to occur a lot. Uh, all the mercs that came out of South Africa after the conflicts uh, there in, in, in neighboring Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, were employed by a lot of people uh, in Africa to quell uh, rebel armies or just guard uh, diamond mines, things like that. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you guys think about the Mercs. Yeah, well, I think. Go ahead. Go ahead, Oldie Green. Well, what I would say about contractors is that their relationship with the United States military is primarily what you described, uh, Adam. It's logistics, right? And it's security, guarding the logistical trains uh, or lines of communication, which is what that famous Blackwater incident was tied to an operation to do that. Uh, I obviously didn't seem like it went very well. But, uh, you know, they're used because they're relatively cheap. It's pretty expensive to send a trained unit of military service members over and then support them while they're there with certain standards, uh, equipment, and you know, they get access to uh, division assets, air power, all of those things. And the contractors are like, yeah, we don't need all that stuff. All we're going to do is drive this uh, armored SUV down the road in front of the gut truck and make sure nobody blows it up. Like, So you can skip, you know, expending all those resources to get this food moved from point A to point B because we're going to put a bunch of guys with tattoos and beards in this truck and they're going to drive down the road with their sunglasses on. And, uh, you know, for the military, that's a pretty damn good deal because they don't have to train these guys. Oftentimes they, they were previously trained by the military, but, you know, Eric Prince is Blackwater. He trains them up. He equips them. He sends them over. He pays them. All the military has to do is tell them, here's the rules while you're here. And, uh, you know, here's your contract payment. There you go. So that's a lot easier than worrying about rotating a unit in and then rotating it out. And there's just so much stuff that goes in with that. So are there more specialized contractors? Absolutely. And usually they're guys that were previously experienced in the military or other agencies in a specific thing like piloting or, um, you know, UAVs. Or those, and those guys fill an invaluable role, right? Because the military lost their experience because they didn't want to be in anymore. And they got out. Now they're in the civilian sector, and they can sort of choose when they go overseas. And when they're done, they're done. They can just go home and do whatever. They don't have to play the rest of the silly games. So it's kind of a win-win uh, for those PMCs or whatever you want to call them and the military. Uh, JT, and, go ahead. Yeah, I would say that the contractor phenomenon is, as, as we would look at it in recent history, is really a symptom of the fact that the United States is trying to wage warfare on a scale in which it needs the draft and doesn't have it. So it's just, it's kind of an easy button. They, they write a big check. Um, you know, they do debt spending in perpetuity and they just write a big check and some company steps in and is like, oh, I can, I can take care of that problem for you. And like old Hickory saying, it's really attractive to the military commander to just be able to kind of go hands-free on a problem uh, that's in his area of operations and it's no skin off the back of, you know, DC. They're not, they're not paying for this and they're not Joe taxpayer. So it's just kind of a perpetual phenomenon of where this has grown and grown and grown to the degree that it's almost like assumed that we're going to be in these places where we're fighting these wars forever, like to the end of our lifetime. So we might as well just get everybody involved and keep, keep growing the mechanism, the organism uh, to, to unimaginable, you know, depth and, and to where, 
these contracting companies come in and are like, oh, this is a, a chance at a good payday. And we know that Uncle Sam is going to write a huge check and we can definitely recruit guys because it's real hard to keep guys in the military when they're staring down these, you know, war after war after war after war. It wasn't really designed to be that way. Um, I mean, just a sheer look at kind of the days deployed for your average guy who's been in the, the military for 10 to 20 years now. I mean, I don't want to say that, you know, guys in the past didn't do that, but it definitely wasn't like the norm. It wasn't expected that when you joined the military, you would spend 15 years of your life away fighting wars. It's just, it's kind of a new thing. And I think it's a symptom of that dynamic. Well, related to that, uh, I, I, I tried to dig up the original link and you guys being in the community might know the specifics a lot better than I recollect, but I recollect a, a letter I want to say it was from somebody in uh, Ranger School leadership um, that was talking about how uh, they were concerned about uh, a potential decline in uh, standards because uh, yeah. they were quoting one of the uh, one of the uh, current uh, leadership. They have a certain essentially allocation, like they need a certain number of uh, Ranger qualified uh, units or uh, ranger qualified personnel in order to fulfill all of the missions that they're assigned, which, you know, just grow inexorably year after year. And as a result, maybe that guy that uh, previously would have uh, not made the cut um, that, you know, maybe some person has a bad feeling about or doesn't want to actually be working with him. Nonetheless, it's like, it's better to have that guy than to not have that guy and the, uh, in the opinion of the leadership. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll let you guys clarify if I have the specifics of that particular incident uh, wrong, but uh, I'm more interested to hear if you think that that's an actual dynamic that takes place now. Yeah. So um, I don't want to say that didn't happen in the Ranger community. It very well could have, um, but Ranger school isn't, doesn't really create Rangers. I mean, you can go into a Ranger battalion and you don't have to go to the school beforehand. It's its own unit. You eventually, they, they send people to it, obviously, as, as often as they can. A ranger school, is it's a tab, it's a qualification, it's a 60-day thing, and then you're done with it. Guys will go to ranger school from the infantry, they'll go from special forces, they'll go from ranger battalions. So, I mean, that's not really a gateway to a unit. Um, what you're talking about, I think, it actually it was our community. So there's a really famous and well-known incident where someone blew a whistle on training standards in the SF community. And... That is a big deal because the SF qualification course is a gateway to special forces to the regiment. You, you finish it, you get tabbed, and then you go to a group, and then you start conducting operations as a Green Beret at that point. So if the training standards are you know subpar in the special forces qualification course, you're looking at on the back end pushing out a product that's not up to standard that, that matters a lot. And I don't want to denigrate Ranger School at all. It's fantastic training and, and people go there and they, and they really work their butts off. But if you go to Ranger School and they don't really grade you as hard, it's not necessarily, um, you know, on the back end, you're not achieving like a catastrophic failure in the military's ability to conduct its operations abroad. Because you're going back to a unit with its own tasks, its own capabilities, its own doctrinal foundation. And it's really that unit's responsibility to train you for that. With SF, it's the qualification course's responsibility to train you for that. And then you get to your groups. You're not supposed to be doing on-the-job training. You're supposed to show up qualified. And I can tell you um, that letter, you know, 
I, I don't really personally, when I read it, when I look at it, thinking back to it, this was a couple of years ago, but I mean, all the, the things that they mentioned that are real things, it's real concerns, you know, I mean, there's pressure every time that we have a conflict that's drawing our resources thin, there's pressure to increase the size of special forces and, and special operations in general. And that's where you have what we call the the soft truths. And one of them is you can't produce mass quantities of special operations after a conflict occurs, after the need arises. That's just not how it works. You can't basically just crap them out to achieve effects for you. You have to like build this institutional capability that's drawing the right recruits over time. You've got an acceptable training pathway for them and you're bringing them into their units appropriately. And then you've got this capability that exists in real time. And when you need it, you call upon it. <clears throat> so I think the author of that whoever that whistleblower was, you know, they made some accurate observations about the problem, which is we're being asked to produce a mass amount of people with this qualification. Well, the emphasis is on numbers. It's on quantity, not quality. If I, that, I think that's what you're talking about. I, I think you guys might be running into just a, a scale problem in that your pipeline is not large enough in order to filter out the the creme de la creme that needs to go into these types of units. I have some numbers, please clarify them, but this is again from that Green Beret book. Uh, it said there's about 50,000 um, people, special operations people, personnel, I don't know exactly what they're engaged in, uh, under the purview of Tampa, Florida, which I assume is some sort of uh, operational uh, management center. Um, but according to this author's opinion, there's only about 5,000 that meet the quote unquote Superman description, which performs, consumes like a Ferrari race car in his words, uh, which is, I would assume the, the best of the best that you can count on in those really hairy situations where judgment is needed and they can't just follow orders. And that just tells me that if you're going from 50,000 to 5,000, you really can only get that top 10% or so. And without increasing the total influx of uh, people wanting to do this, you really just can't get that much more unless you drop standards. And so as you, I think, uh, JT, you, you said it, uh, well, we're trying to fight a, a war uh, without a draft, uh, but requiring somewhat of a draft and it's, it's just not working. So I don't know if you have comments on, on the size of this and if that, if that all makes sense about, you know, trying to recruit the top and you just don't have enough in the pipeline. Yeah. It, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, if you're, if you're just talking about SOCOM, they, SOCOM kind of controls all of the special operations forces from the SEALs to the, the Air Force guys, the Army guys, right? And th they cannot get, you know, you you have to rely on the recruiters for your main branch, right? So if you're an Army Special Forces, the Army has to first recruit them, and then they have to go through their basic training and their primary job. And then that guy has to qualify for your standards to try out for your organization. Then he has to pass those, then he has to be trained up, and then he gets put in your organization, you're talking about a four to 12 year long process and the army itself just for, for recruiting into the biggest possible pool for the army. It, it's almost completely tapped out. There's nobody left in the country that meets the recruitment requirements as low as they can be. And for some jobs, people are too obese. Uh, they're not smart enough. They're not, you know, they have drug addiction problems, criminal records. So if the army is struggling to meet its recruitment standards and retention standards, then so will special forces, right? So if it takes a highly specialized type of person 
to do special forces tasks, but you're you're telling me that we have to deploy these people on a constant basis for 20 consecutive years, you're going to run into serious manning issues, right? Because there's two phenomena at play here. You're giving guys a lot of opportunities, a lot of training, a lot of confidence in their abilities, and then you're deploying them constantly. So they see their value in other industries or in other areas or sometimes as private military contractors or, or contractors, I guess. And it's hard to keep those really highly motivated and skilled guys in when they see better opportunities without such an insane amount of deployment time, right? And you're, you're having a hard time pulling more people in because you require more people to do the jobs that you're going to, right? So, you know, I think a good example of, of um, what I'm talking about was prior to 9-11, we sent guys to Afghanistan and other places just to do partnered training. Even before the Iranian revolution, we had guys going to Iran and doing training with the Iranians. This is all public information. These are all congressionally approved training programs, right? But when you kick off a war in a place, now and now you're supporting a conventional unit in that war, you're not just deploying a team of 12 guys. You're deploying a battalion of, you know, I guess that would be 12 teams, right? So it would have been nine teams back then, right? That's a lot, that's a huge difference in the number of people that you have to prepare, equip, you know, train, deploy, redeploy, you know, have all that post-deployment stuff going. It just does. It, it's impossible to do it. It's impossible to, and and maintain standards. It's you can't do it. Has there been any yeah, pushback I, from the brass on on this issue to DC? Has as anyone in the military hierarchy come out and tried to tried to say that you know we're making a huge mistake here, or they have mostly kept quiet? Well, I mean, I I, I can't speak for you know the very high level brass. I'm not in the inner circles there. But I mean, if you just look at the incentives at play, no one is incentivized to do that. Yeah. So it's in, it's in the officer, your average officer's best interest to get that combat command for a year, wherever that is, if that's in Syria or if it's Iraq or Afghanistan, it's in their best interest to get that. This system benefits them. So the, the more we're involved abroad, the better it is for their careers. And then as they go up in the chain, you know, who's going to slaughter that cow that they fed off of for so many years? Because officers, you know, NSF officers spend uh, a couple years at the very beginning of their careers in SF on the teams actively deploying and involved at the team level and doing classic SF operations. But then after that, it's all staff or command. <clears throat> so for them, it's at that point, you're just in a career. You're not actively doing SF operations. Um, so the way that we've got this thing set up, and if you remember on the Rebel Yell, Adam, you asked us, was, was the reforms made in the 80s good? Were they, were they good? And we said, yeah, there were some good things about institutionalizing you know, knowledge and tactics and, and things like that. But when SF got branched, um, a lot of people in the community feel like that was a mistake because then what happens is your officers, your leaders, and, and your enlisted uh, troops become subject to big armies promotion cycles. They become subject to basically the typical career paths that all of the officers and enlisted troops in the army take um, for certain key events. <clears throat> now, for it's not uncommon for an SF officer to kind of bounce in and out of SF as they get promoted. That's very rare for an enlisted troop, but their promotions for the enlisted guys, they compete with, you know, conventional troops for their promotions. 
you know, you may think, well, that's not, you know, that shouldn't be a big problem, right? But the way that promotions are mandated in the Army is that each unit can only give so many guys, you know, a good evaluation or what we would call, you know, among the best. So if you've got an SF team with 10 guys, only four of them, you know, less than half can get that top-notch evaluation. Whereas if I've got, you know, a conventional brigade or whatever, you know, 49% of them can get that. So those six guys on the SF team, you know, as far as the army is concerned, didn't do anything better than the 51% of the combat brigade that they're up against. So a lot of this is kind of, it's kind of a large topic, but it's kind of incentives at all the levels at play here of command, you know, especially officers. And it's kind of like, I doubt anyone's done that because it would take extreme, extreme levels of like moral courage and integrity. Um, and I don't want to say anyone, I think didn't Shinseki get like fired for basically saying exactly what you just said, but yeah, I mean, it's gotta and, be. And Shinseki, I mean, you mentioned earlier, America is a country that doesn't have a draft, but needs one. Uh, Shinseki actually got in hot water when he was working for, for W because he had said, uh, very pointedly to Wolfowitz and these other characters, uh, that in order to successfully, occupy these parts of the Middle East that they were looking at, uh, they would need to institute a huge draft. They were going to need millions of troops. They were going to need huge amount of supply chain, you know, uh, robustness that just didn't exist at the time. And he was, I think he was pretty much snowballed after that. And then he basically got the ax after he, you know, somewhat publicly criticized the approach. Yeah, I'm, I'm out I'm absolutely sure that this has happened behind the scenes more than once, but I mean, I think in general, if we're, if we're building like a straw man profile of the actions of senior officers within special operate, the special operations community, they're, they're just not incentivized to like throw their hand up and ask the right questions about this whole thing. Um, it's just not in their best interest and they're not and to be quite frank. They're just honestly not involved with it enough at the ground level to even understand the feedback that they should be getting. Um, it's just not a it's not a good system for long term occupational imperialism. I, I would say too to to be to add a little bit more fairness. I I think that was a very fair assessment. But at at the same time, if you're an officer and you you bring that up, you're it's not going anywhere unless you have major pull. And how I mean, we're talking about a couple dozen guys with major pull. So the the calculus is pretty simple for them it's yeah i can go up there with this cross and stake myself on it and nothing is going to change or i can do the best that i can with the situation that we're in and every time there's a standards issue or a change in the way uh, approach or, or or operations or training that that's the kind of decision that they have to make you know and i'm not i'm not really going to share what my personal opinions on that are but to be fair that i mean that that's an obvious reason why you're not going to see everybody running up there to to put their cross in the ground so yeah those are wise words i mean you know if you give the the top an excuse to get rid of you for insubordination or whatnot uh, you're not going to be very effective and i think that's what you're driving at it's like and it's a tough thing because Sometimes truth and power don't go hand in hand, uh, and the compromise a lot of people make is uh, in any organizational setting is in order to rise to the top, I cannot always be honest, and I have to play politics. And sometimes, if you're a good soldier, you're not really a politician, and vice versa. And this is a bit of a conundrum, and I think any organization, uh, 
but in the military, it's particularly scary because you guys are involved in life and death. Um, one more thing, it, it, this reminds me of, and I don't remember the guy's name, but I do remember uh, in the early aughts when I think the, I, the either the war had started in Iraq or it was being debated. So either 2002, 2003, Hank, you might remember this guy, but he basically told the press, and I mean, it, again, the analogy of putting yourself on a cross, I mean, it couldn't probably couldn't be better, but he, he, he told the press that the administration's estimate for the total cost of the Iraq war. And I think this was Rumsfeld's statement of something like, uh, Oh, it won't be more than like, uh, 10 billion or $70 billion or something like that was ludicrous. And he said, it's going to approach a trillion dollars and he was more than correct. Uh, but he got fired immediately. Uh, so this, this stuff is tough to, to deal with when you're dealing with politicians who don't really play, play fair. Um, and it's just an example of like, I think what, what happens to your leadership when they end up having to make those compromises, when they get to the top, like they can't be, they can't be truthful anymore. (laughs) So I don't know if you guys have any solutions to that, but maybe, maybe not having the, uh, the system we have is one of them, but that's, that's sort of an open-ended answer. So if you have any details or thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, it's really hard to have a solution to such a strategic level problem like that. And, you know, we've all spent a lot of time talking about problems at a level that we can't personally impact. But when your entire economy works off of just generating as much spending as you can, the growth is just it's like a tumor that grows in all the wrong places. Right. (laughs) Like the worst places. And we are not immune from that. And uh, and that's particularly dangerous when the American public has the sense that like oh it's just uh, it's just special operations like those guys they're, they're deployed everywhere all the time anyhow no big deal right uh, you you deploy fifty thousand guys to Iraq next month and that's going to be a big deal mm-hmm. um, but you put another couple of uh, special forces battalions in Iraq for the next five years and nobody really cares so the problem hits harder in some places than others and um, but. You know, I guess this is a slightly different topic, but the the opportunities that are available to to guys that are interested in this sort of uh, experience and this sort of uh, profession are really endless. And there's problems in every large scale organization that you could possibly work for. But the upside of participating in something like this and meeting the the kind of quality people that you're going to be around are really high. So when people ask me what they should do, I'd say, well, if it interests you, you should join and go do it and get the experience and learn a little bit about it. And uh, I think you can make a change. You can make changes in your life after that and use that as experience as a springboard to doing that. That's not a strategic answer to that problem, but I think it's one that average guys can kind of undertake and and get some progress going, at least in their immediate circle and in their life. But What what do you think the the makeup of a good special forces soldier is, uh, what, 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 what do you look for or what do you, what would you say makes the best soldier and what is the personality traits? Uh, you know, other, other things like that. I mean, basic measurable things like fitness and, and intelligence, uh, of course are important, but I think the psychology one is also, uh, probably the more complex one because it, it deals with a multitude of possibilities, obviously you need grit and ambition, but maybe not too much ambition because you got to follow orders. So maybe like 
paint the picture of what the profile of a good special forces uh, operator is, if you could. Yeah, this is a this has also been a really big topic, um, you know, in the community for a long time. We're just so similar. There, there's so few outliers. Almost every guy is it's a white guy from you know, 60 or 70% of the time, a rural area in the Midwest or the South. And, you know, they're not urbanized in any way. They like to hunt and fish. And I think they're the biggest qualities that I see as the most important is that they're just psychologically durable and they're motivated by problem solving. So they don't, you know, when problems start stacking up on them, they don't get overwhelmed. They just try to stack them in the right order and get through them, you know, so they're very mission focused. And I don't think that's something the army really teaches them. I, I think that's how they are naturally. So they respond really well to the sort of stimulation they get from the training. Right. And they kind of see that person get polished. And, uh, I think intelligence can't be overstated. Um, you don't have to be a super genius, but you do have to have sort of a, a social intelligence about you, uh, that transcends things like language, right? Like what's going on around me right now is kind of an important question. And, We've all made the jokes about the hipsters that wander in the wrong side of town and, and the, you know, they're like, oh, where's the ice cream shop or the, the craft brewery? And, and they get kind of confused and they don't realize, like, what's closing in around them. Like, you can't really afford to have that sort of oblivious, <laughs> you know, perception of the world around you, uh, especially not in this community. But I think, too, and the, the most important one is, you know, you want confident people, but you don't want them narcissistic or egotistical. Um, and, and this is why. I think the popular conception of this job is that you have this individual guy and he goes out there and does something very daring and heroic. And, uh, you know, he barely survives by the skin of his teeth. And, you know, it was his athletic prowess and his uh, ability to shoot a long range weapon uh, that got him through this uh, highly classified mission. But in reality, it's nothing like that. It's more like you're a member of a, a team and you're going to chip in a small part, which will probably never really be commented on by anyone outside of the few guys involved in it. And uh, you're going to have each other's backs and you're going to high five or whatever at the end of your deployment. And you're just going to have the personal satisfaction of knowing that you did a really good job as best as you could. And, and you got the outcome that you wanted. And, and you have to be OK with that. And it's the strivers and the people that want that that self-aggrandizement those are the dangerous ones that that have to go or rarely really make it so i don't know jt what do you think so you can almost certainly tell really quick when you meet someone whether or not they're going to fit this mold that old hickory's talking about it, it it's really easy to tell who the guys are that are going to fit in and do these things and i always find it kind of funny as the special forces institution and mission and just in general its existence evolved over time it's almost like the core requirements of the guys that filled it never did so we get the term special operations from the british they coined it and churchill specifically coined it when he was a boer prisoner um they were at war with the boer commandos when he got back and was in charge and able to make things happen he said i want a Special operations force that consists of specially trained troops of the hunter class. I want hunters like woodsmen. I want those guys that exist out in the countryside uh, because that's who I just had to deal with, uh, you know, as a prisoner. I want our own capability like that. I want these self-sufficient, humble, ingenious, uh, problem-solving, not easily intimidated 
types of guys to come in and receive special training and then get sent forth to do what we call decentralized execution. So we do centralized planning and decentralized execution, meaning back in in the rear, or the headquarters, we, we come together, we come up with a plan, and then we get sent forth and you put guys out on their own, kind of on the fringes of the battle space. And they've got to make decisions without feedback, without a feedback loop from higher or even their peers sometimes. And they've just got to be comfortable with that environment. So it's kind of like the type of person you're looking for. I mean, definitely intelligence is kind of, you know, intangible, but it's, it's like old Hickory was saying, social intelligence and awareness is worth 10 times an IQ point beyond once we get past like 110, like that social awareness is worth its weight in gold. And so these guys that come in and do really well are just, you know, really simple people that can look at their surroundings and assess people, size them up. And they get sent in these really complex situations in these really abstract cultures and situations and things are confusing and happening really fast around them, but never once does it intimidate them or catch them off guard. And eventually as time goes on, they get very good at predictive modeling and so probably the greatest function that SF produces um, is that of predictive modeling for the, you know, everyone else, basically, conventional forces, diplomats, State Department, intelligence apparatus, everybody, because we exist out on the fringes where it's not safe to be for the most part. And we're conducting operations with indigenous forces who are just a fount of knowledge on the current situation. So you've got to have this this kind of guy who's comfortable with that. And if you think of like what a, a woodsman is or a hunter, um, you know, they're very comfortable going out and being on their own for days at a time and, and making it happen. And they're not really worried about getting back. Uh, they know it's they're going to get back because they're going to be able to solve problems along the way. And I would say if you go into your average team room, um, you're going to find, you know, seven out of 10 guys in that team room are that type of guy. And it's very rural, very white. And for the most part, if we're being honest, a lot of Southerners fill fill these ranks. I think it's just kind of funny to me how that's never really changed despite all these changes in, you know, the operational environment. You got the same type of guy going in to Afghanistan early on right after 9-11 with a very thick southern draw <laughs> that you've got right now going in to Syria, you know, on the back end of a successful campaign to, to get rid of ISIS. So I, th- I don't see that changing anytime soon. Well, the, the funny thing that uh, well, maybe not funny, but I think the very true thing you, you're noticing is the accent is Southern. And I've been throughout the South, and you find that accent, but you don't find it in the big cities anymore because they've, they've become part of this national and international system. And I think what's what you're picking up on also is that the guys that actually live in rural communities, and there's a lot of rural communities in the South because of the history and, and the, the lush vegetation because of all the rainfall and, and the farming culture and the hunting culture, you got, you got, you have guys like those, uh, those hunters, those, those Jaegers uh, that they're, I guess they're called in, um, in the Boer war. And that is not very common throughout the rest of the country. And I think it's that rural aspect in particular that you really need because these guys are, are accustomed to surviving, uh, and adapting, and making uh, lethal decisions with efficacy when they're out hunting, uh, and so it's it's maybe you maybe you guys know somebody from Dallas, but I've been to, to Dallas a few times and they don't sound like Texans to me. So uh, I would look for like the good old boys that that have the accent. That's all I got to say. 
I think too, it's being involved in a community uh, that has kind of like a peer review system on your behavior, right? Because one of the ways that you get that mental, um, I guess, hardiness and durability is that you, you, you're trained in it by the people around you because they don't accept, you know, weakness or breakdowns and things of that nature. So it's kind of a competition to show who's not going to really care that much about whatever adversity you're facing and just stay focused on the problem. And when you start getting that sort of feedback loop, it just goes and it goes and it goes. And you see that it's not just in the South, right? You see it in farming cultures, rural cultures all over the country, uh, especially up North where they get a ton of snowfall. You see a lot of that. And it's a very important aspect for, of a person's personality. If they're going to be spending long periods of time and harsh social and environmental conditions, which is standard, you know, it's standard to spend four to six months in a <laughs> very harsh place with nobody that speaks your native tongue and probably would slit your throat if they could get away with it. Right. So, and then you kind of get stronger from it and, and seeing the other guys around you, they don't, you know, they're not really bothered by it. They're just dealing with it and it just goes on and on and on. And I think in your more urban environments, which by the way, I will say that urbanites have skills and advantages too. And there are definitely some of those guys around in the community, uh, but their their skills lend them to different things, right? And they're creative in different ways. So I think for this particular unit, uh, it's definitely, it favors the more rural upbringing for sure. Well, do you, do you feel also, especially with this uh, occupy and not infiltrate, but uh, observe at, at the very least these uh, these countries like Afghanistan and Iraq that that rural upbringing is a little bit closer to maybe the people that you're you're doing that to uh, because th- these are relatively uh, more agricultural uh, in nature countries or rural I should say and so maybe that that lack of that interconnect with global homo cosmopolitanism makes you guys. I don't know. Maybe they accept you more. I, I, what, what is that interaction like? like? Do they recognize that you you're not this uh, this idiot hipster who's looking for a, a craft brewery? I mean, they they recognize you as sort of a man as as opposed to somebody who's sat in a sat in a desk all his life. Uh, I'm just I'm speculating here, but I just I would imagine some of these guys might be able to recognize that that aspect of your your background more and respect it. I think there's some of that and. You know, I think, too, that if if you're from one of those more rural environments, especially in the South, right, you have this kind of history of martial history and the people that said, settled in the Scots-Irish people that settled in the South and other places in the country. It's this kind of lineage of warfare <laughs> that goes back to as far as anybody can remember. So when you see tribal warfare in foreign countries, you, you don't you don't have to you don't. This this doesn't seem abnormal to you. You understand why they would think that way, or you understand maybe honor culture a little bit better, you know. So, yeah, and I think too the uh, the tough guy culture is also you know proving that you're. I, I would say that people that are from rural places have more masculinity tests or gates throughout their life, right? When you killed your first deer, you know breaking your first bronco or whatever it may be if you're i guess in the in the wild west out there right but 
they, well, you have those things. They're a big part of your life, right? And everybody remembers the first deer they killed and, you know, some places they eat the heart or the liver or whatever. So when you see things like that abroad, like, yeah, you, you might think they're really strange. And a lot of times they are strange for us, but we understand the concept. So you're able to kind of connect with those people a little bit better, right? I, I think personally, it, it increases your awareness of what's going on when you're in those kind of rural foreign countries. And Afghanistan's a perfect example of that. So I'm going to turn it around and talk about the interconnect with the people in Washington. Now, I would imagine you guys are fortunate enough not have to deal with them directly, but your your uh, commanding officers, I imagine, do at some level have to deal with the uh, the cringe situation room that the New York Times loved to profile. Uh, badass Hillary and, and badass Obama sitting there making these executive decisions about what our nation is doing in uh, the Middle East. And um, I think I have a quote from, uh, from Lutwak uh, that said, uh, when uh, an engineering and bureaucratized establishment attempts commando operations, it is always unlucky. So w- what do you think about how the politicians um, direct you guys? I mean, is, is, there, is there some sort of insight there, or would you... Would you go go as far to say that they just don't know what they're doing and you need somebody else in charge when it comes to conducting special operations? I would say that our reliance on that critique is overblown. I think that we like to blame politicians in D.C. for mishaps abroad when, in fact, what's happened is – now, they're not blameless, don't get me wrong – over time – like old Hickory was talking about this tumor has grown in so many directions that what we've seen is almost like a continuance of the status quo where, where decisions are being made at levels far beneath them for important things that are just happening and assumed to be of critical importance in a perpetual occupation abroad. So we've got some key DC driven changes will be like a national security strategy where someone like Obama will say, okay, we're going to transition our focus to Asia. You know, if you can read his national security strategy and if you can sift through the parts on climate change and all that stuff, you'll get to like where he actually talks about, okay, what is our defense strategy going to be? And yeah, you have like some instances like that, but that doesn't mean there wasn't multiple you know, two to three star commands and a four star command already with great influence and power and extreme budgets and all kinds of forces at the disposal lobbying for continual implementation of the exact thing he's saying that he wants now. It, it, you know, it doesn't really shift too many resources on the ground. So I think it's almost kind of the easy button for us to say, okay, Obama's foreign policy is this or Trump's foreign policy is that. And I don't want to like take away, you know, our accountability of our politicians, but we have to understand that what's happened is a lot of mid and senior level guys in the institutions that we're talking about have taken on a lot of onus for what's happening. And I think Lutwax a good a good, a good person to quote on this because if you think back to coup d'état, um, he wrote coup d'état. One of his central points in that was. If you want to implement a coup d'état abroad, you target the mid-level guys. You don't you don't go for the top. You don't go to the president or you know advisors like that or strategic commanders. You continually hammer the mid-level guys because effective decisions are being made at that level, <clears throat> and recognizing the importance of those decisions is important. 
So it's kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, I think it can be a cop out for us to blame a lot of the stuff that's going on on like one person. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I think the the sort of aspect of a, I mean, not just one person, like it's almost kind of a, a trope at this point that the president just doesn't really have that much innate power or authority, but that there's a entire kind of a social structure surrounding him and not just social structure. Like we live in a society, man, but like there actually is a, a specific society of people that constitutes the ruling class that has their own kind of, uh, objectives and criteria for admissions. And I mean, what I, what I find interesting about Lutwak is that it's not just all of your, uh, you know, your, your stereotypical, like anyone from a major to a, uh, to a Colonel that you get on your coup d'etat. It's the ones who get frozen out of the power process. You've got the people that end up being in the promotion pipeline that are definitely going to make general because they know all of the right moves to make and they come from all the best families and so on and so forth. And then you've got somebody who rose to the mid-level ranks through competency because they're useful, but not because they're ideologically aligned enough that they're going to actually make it into that leadership cast. And I find it interesting that, like, you know, with one or two kind of debated exceptions, there really aren't any generals uh, in the U.S. that can even be named, let alone that form a kind of a charismatic uh, popular figure of the level of like an Eisenhower or a MacArthur or a Patton or, uh, you know, all of these uh, figures of yesteryear. So I'm wondering if you guys have the the sort of perception that, uh, you know, to what extent is military leadership kind of aligned with this permanent ruling class, I guess is the short way of putting it. Well, I think so, if, if you analyze the incentive structure, I think you pointed out something really important, which is the highest level leaders are vetted based on their buy-in, right? And they kind of cycle a little bit, right? When, when the new presidential administration comes in, uh, you know, they'll get rid of some other guys and, and they'll start promoting some of their cabinet's preferred picks in to position, right? So I think the highest level part of that is pretty obvious. If you want to get picked and you want to stay where you're at and you want to retire with the uh, full blessings of the establishment and the, possibly some favors from the media, then you just continue doing you know, you continue suggesting the same things that got you where you're at. And if you're a mid-level guy or just below there, then then what incentive do you have in going after a person who's essentially a made man, right? It, it would only work if you could get the entire chain above you to kind of join in your chorus of opposition to a particular, you know, policy or what have you. And at the lowest levels, that, that's where you get the most punishment, right? You don't get to ride off into the sunset with your sweet, uh, you know, 06 retirement or whatever. At the lowest levels, you, you lose important access to jobs that you wanted, or sometimes you can even be removed completely from the military. So it's very difficult to buck this gigantic, it's like, it's like a thousand pound saddle, man. The horse is not going to be able to buck that thing off. Um, it, it makes it very, very difficult. So then your choice becomes, 
well, what decisions can I make within this, you know, narrow hallway that I'm in? You know, if I stay between the walls, what which ones can get me closest to the, where I want to be at the end of the time, my time or at the end of this deployment or whatever situation timeline you're dealing with. Right. So it's very tough. It's very difficult. And I think it's important to note that, uh, it's it's not like one decision, and this has been hit a couple times, so I won't drag it on. But it's not one decision maker, right? Hil- Hillary Clinton, I think, probably would have been a worse president. But what's really changed about our foreign policy since Bill Clinton, even before him? Like, what's really changed? Not much. The way that we think about and interact with the rest of the world has kind of been on a fixed trajectory, and we've had peaks, right? So we had Vietnam. Then we had another peak in Iraq War II, right? And it just kind of continues to go up with these little valleys and progressively higher uh, spikes, right? But the the mentality and the approach has stayed the same. Uh, Republican, Democrat, George Bush, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Donald Trump. As far as I see, it's not really changed much about how we approach anything. So there's certainly got to be other powers at play here other than than just the, the actual chain of command, if that makes sense. Well, where where did uh, so Hank was mentioning we we don't quite have a MacArthur uh, anymore, and I would tend to agree. There's just not that much charisma coming out of the top level brass. I mean, the the few generals that I could actually name, and I don't study this, but I do remember. And this is again, this is coming from what's fed to me from the press, and so I, I already don't don't trust it. But just on a visceral level, I had a very strange reaction to uh, General Petraeus. Uh, who I didn't find interesting at all, and also seemed to be, according to uh, JT at least, uh, producing something that was relatively academic rather than practical. Um, Wesley Clark seemed like he was just preparing uh, his campaign speeches his entire career. Uh, And then this Mattis guy, who was really uh, ballyhooed before uh, he actually got in as some sort of like uh, tough guy, didn't seem to do much. So none of these guys are very impressive uh but you know i'm I'm not from the inside i'm just looking at it from the surface and the, the amount of press cover that they get is also a little bit suspicious to me because they, they don't seem to fit in with that archetype of a of a strong leader type and that does make me suspect that the the oligarchy or the leadership or the elite want want it that way because they they consistently pick guys like this to promote in the press um and Hank has uh, said in, in previous conversations that uh, the U.S. has a, an incredibly strong anti-coup apparatus set up for arguably the, the reason that they don't want a charismatic guy knocking the, uh, the oligarchy of the elite out of power. But do you guys have any comments on like how these generals rise to where they are? And I don't know if you agree with my general assessment, yeah. but it's just my kind of visceral reaction. Yeah, so I'll start by saying this is such a large entity that there's no such thing as a universal truth. So when I make some generalizations, I'm not saying that like one person hasn't done this or existed in this way. For an example would be Dunford. I don't know if you remember the Marine Commandant who became a joint chief. Um, Female integration was a hot topic a few years ago. They were going to integrate women into combat arms and also special forces, soft in general, including special forces. And Dunford was the Marine Commandant at the time, and he allowed uh, the publication of a study to come out of the Marines recommending that they don't do it. 
And this was a very unpopular thing for him to do inside the Beltway. Every, you know, political organism at play here wanted this to happen. It was a huge uh, narrative win for the, you know, the D.C. elite, uh, despite the fact that pretty much universally amongst the ground troops and special operations, this is a very loathed um, initiative. I mean, I want to say 95 percent of respondents to a, a large survey that was given said that they did not want female integration. And that survey included a lot of what we'd call, you know, kind of the newer and less like established special operations elements. You know, you've got like some, for example, some Air Force entities that are, that are definitely special operations and doing great things, but they haven't existed as an institutional special operations element for, for as long as like special forces has or the Rangers. So like their perspective on it might, you know, it might be different or maybe the missions they're doing. But to, to get that kind of consensus on something's really you know, it's alarming. And it really sent shockwaves through the system. And we had all kinds of punt coverage being pulled on this. And we had academic or, you know, organizations being hired to publish, you know, these totally bogus assessments of how this was going to work and it was going to be great. And Dunford allowed the Marines as an entire organization to basically buck the system. And he got promoted after that. So I don't want to sit here and say that it can't happen. But in general, generally speaking, my perception is that once you get to certain levels, like old Hickory saying, bucking the system is not in your best interest. It's not, you're not incentivized to do it. Your, your ability to actually implement change is reduced um, to like whatever is already the accepted way forward. Notice how female integration still happened after Dunford got promoted. So we're still getting women integrated into these organizations and units, despite the fact that Dunford himself said, I agree with, with this, that my assessment is that we should not do it. Um, it's almost like a tidal wave that's moving so fast and so tall that you're going to be the one guy that runs into it head on and just gets taken out. Um, so it's really tough to say uh, that you would, that you're going to see a lot of these patent types that are going to just through sheer force of character uh, be able to overcome uh, kind of strategic uh, roadblocks, you know, to their worldview. You know, why is Stanley McChrystal back in the news yesterday? I, I think I saw him, you know, headlined on an article somewhere. It's because he's willing to publish a gun control op-ed. You know, I mean, that's exactly what the establishment wants. So Stanley McChrystal is going to stay in your newsfeed, you know, long after he's a household name. He's just going to continually be shoved right back down your throat. He's saying the accepted things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't think there's any palatability for, for like a true rogue to come in and, and do that. I, I personally have known some senior officers who I respect greatly. They're definitely men of integrity and they definitely, you know, even if we disagreed on, on what we should be doing abroad, like they weren't doing it for nefarious reasons. Um, and they, you know, they don't make it all the way to the top. They just don't. And I, I don't, you know, I'm, this is kind of anecdotal, but I mean, I would think that a lot of people would kind of look back on their careers and see it the same way. Like we're just not seeing that type of person, be incentivized to exist in the first place and then being able to to kind of blade run throughout their career and end up in that spot yeah and, and even historically at least going back to world war ii uh the macarthur and Patton examples i mean both of those guys were decapitated at a certain point uh and so they they couldn't rise i mean the only guy that really got somewhere was eisenhower and he was not really a, a a soldier's soldier, soldier uh, in, in many people's estimation. He had never actually served in, in a combat facility, yet he was promoted up through these ranks uh, and then ultimately became president. So you you got to assume that he had some political skills, if not ambition, uh, the whole time. And it wasn't the type that was loudly uh, 
debating or criticizing the establishment's uh, political strategy. So I don't even know. I mean, maybe going back to uh, Ulysses S. Grant, and I'm really rusty on that era of American history, but... I mean, he was a general, uh, but he was also, I mean, it's sort of hard to dispute the political appeal of your your nation's top general being president. And I guess you could say that about Eisenhower. But these, these lesser generals, they better play ball, it would seem, historically. And I don't see any different pattern uh, ever have having been taken place. So it's probably just a universal truth going forward. You got to be smart about the, the politics. Has any general tried to uh, revise or reverse Petraeus's contribution to SF doctrine? Or has that sort of remained official doctrine since it was sort of rewritten by Petraeus? Yeah, so I don't want to phrase it. If I if I phrase it that way, it's my mistake. He didn't write SF doctrine per se. He wrote the counterinsurgency doctrine that the army adopted, oh, and so okay. it's kind of, it's kind of like he just basically trumped special forces and said, "I'm just going to publish this at my level." And since you're underneath that, like <laughs> it's basically your doctrine now. So, you know, SF has its own manuals, its own doctrine, um, you know, written by people within the community. But when the army gets together and establishes a board with Petraeus at the head of it, and they publish a doctrine on a core mission of special forces, whether you like it or not, that's your doctrine now. Like that is the counterinsurgency manual. So it's a field manual that the army recognizes as being true for how you conduct counterinsurgency operations. So it was kind of like, I mean, you can call it like a coup of doctrine if you want, like basically just pulling rank on, on what, you know, the establishment says is okay to do for something that has been our bread and butter for many decades. And notice, too, that his contribution was essentially a sales pitch, right? It's like, <laughs> hey, pick me. I can do this thing you want, right? I mean, I'm going to write this big book justifying yeah. how it's all going to work, right? Do you I mean, suspect that's... that he had political motivations, like he was looking at a career in politics afterwards, or was that there's some motive for why he wrote this uh, kind of, as you described it, sort of bloviating new doctrine? I, I really don't know anything about the guy personally. I don't have any inside baseball on people like that. But, you know, I've seen the ambitions from people at every level. And some people just think they're really, really smart. <laughs> you know, And I, I don't doubt that people at that level have political, outside of military, right, extra military uh, ambitions for politics. But, you know, I think it's clear. It's almost like everybody is... Uh, is getting shocked when they, you know, touch the wrong thing and they get the cheese when they touch the right thing. And and enough of that happens to this gigantic organism over time that it just starts growing in a certain direction and everybody in it is kind of reaching that way too. Um, and it, it's really, I, I feel like no matter what level of success that you reach, everybody is kind of doing the same thing. And some people just end up in the right position to get to the very end, right? So... Maybe he's one of just that. He he doesn't have any really uh, uh, malicious or nefarious personal intentions, right? But who knows? I have a I have a well, more mundane question. If I can fit this in while we're talking about uh, the doctrine system uh, in your guys's line of work, um, 
how does it actually work when you guys are out in the field? I mean, do they grade you based upon following the overall strategy laid out in the doctrine? And like, if you do something that was sort of obliquely referenced in the doctrine, that's okay. But if it's explicit, don't do this or do this, then you guys get uh, scolded. I mean, how do they actually apply it to out in the field? The doctrine is what gets you through the door. So it, it establishes a common language that you speak during planning. And every time you get leveraged towards a mission, you have to get approval to do so. So nobody just gets sent like, oh, there, there's an operation in Syria. So your team's going, you just go. No, you have to like plan for it and, and brief back and basically get permission from your commander to be the team that gets slotted towards that piece of that pie. So the doctrine is a foundation from which we all can speak the same language about something. So if I'm, you know, talking about a counterinsurgency mission, um, the doctrine is what I use to talk to my commander during that brief and say, OK, if we look at the fundamentals of an insurgency, you know, according to FM 3-24, you know, here it is. Here's how we are assessing the situation on the ground. And he should be familiar with that doctrine so that we don't waste a lot of time educating each other on our perspectives. So it's basically just kind of like an orientation um, in the beginning. You don't like when you're on the ground, it's not like you've got your field manual in your pocket and you're whipping it out every 10, 10 minutes. Uh, and you're definitely not getting Speak great. For yourself, bro. <laughs> <laughs> It's on your iPad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that'll be the day. Uh, but I mean, I guess what I'm saying is it's, it's really important to establish a core understanding amongst the entire formation of certain critical concepts. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the community that will be like, oh, doctrine, I don't know, whatever. I don't really want to waste a lot of time on that. I know my job. I know what I need to do. And they're right, but they don't realize that that just kind of came naturally to them where they can talk about these things without having to fall back on that. The doctrine is almost a fail safe for that guy who didn't have that natural ability to look in this document by supposed experts and be able to say, okay, yeah. I'm going to phrase this in this way so that we're all speaking the same language. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I think the the common operating picture, it speeds up your ability to like divide up tasks and get things done, right? You don't have to keep rehashing the same things out and you don't have to continuously stop people from making critical mistakes, right? So uh, it, it's very interesting. And in fact, I would I would say that anyone who's interested in any sort of dissident ideology needs to get really comfortable and familiar with various kinds of doctrine. And kind of learn how to think in that systematic way and create a common language to communicate with other people with um, because it cuts out so much um, extra effort and confusion, which is really important, limiting the confusion. And as boring as it can be, it shouldn't be, right? It shouldn't be boring. It should be really simple and everybody should be able to understand it and it shouldn't require a genius to interpret it. But that, as tedious as go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just that was one of the things that I thought was interesting. You mentioned in the previous conversations we've had, and I, I've listened to where you guys have mentioned that is that the, the notion of a doctrine guiding a group of uh, dissidents uh, is, is an interesting one. Uh, I do have to wonder though, because of the the multitude of it's sort of a multi-headed. Uh, Hydra, you know, there's there's lots of people wanting to be the leader, but nobody really wants to do the the grunt work. I mean, who's going to follow that? Like, I, I don't, I can't name how many manifestos have been pumped out, but they they disagree on you know point seven point seven and three point four percent, you know, agree with this. And there's just a <laughs> lot of discord, and it's not a military organization where you basically can command people to follow orders. So 
it's we got to find an analogy where this this could work because it's it's not something that gives you a paycheck and has a career ladder for you to have an incentive to listen to it. It's basically everybody is very carefully looking over their shoulder while they're listening to you and wondering, you know, can they trust you? Can can am I being listened to? It's a tough one. And I'm not saying your 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 concept is is bad in in theory, but in practice, I I struggle to see how people could basically follow orders. Um, and so the key here is that you you have to your doctrine only matters between people who do trust one another, right? Because if I don't trust you, then why would I follow the same doctrine as you do, right? So yeah. the second part about that is, and this is true for any organization, but the true power of it is exclusion, right? So you have a mutually agreed upon doctrine, and if people don't agree upon it, then they can go away. It's right. not, but now the key here is that it has to matter when they're excluded, so if it's if it's an anonymous online right, you, uh, you can't be in my Discord group. Sorry, yeah, yeah who cares? Who cares? Yeah. It's pointless, right? But in in serious terms, if somebody was seriously interested in in projecting political power as a group, uh, then you would have to have an organization with the doctrine, people that trusted each other enough to follow a mutually agreed upon doctrine, and a way to exclude people from the resources of the group if they no longer followed it. And you see all of those things in the military very clearly, right? Because you have rank structures, but actually doctrine is very popular in uh, non-military groups all over the world. Christianity has its own doctrine. So does Judaism. So does Islam. Those are very complicated, um, you know, in-depth doctrine that I don't think is particularly directly useful here, but it's an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, Mao actually had wrote quite a bit of doctrine, right? Mm -hmm. And he trained cadre in his organization to kind of spread that propagate that doctrine out and it actually got so crazy that they have literal branches of the government that just go went around with like machetes and guns and <laughs> to take people out that weren't adhering strictly to it yeah it we're, we're gonna extreme, have to but... find a less uh yeah <laughs> less bloody example but yeah i i get what you mean it, it's you do have to have you have to get the word out right to use the christian sort of uh notion of spreading the gospel I, and I think there's there's some there's some wisdom to what you're saying. Uh, I guess it's it's just tough to coalesce around whatever that doctrine is. That's that's always the challenge when you don't have any clear power base or leadership to draw upon. I mean, we we've had people who have popped up their heads and then uh, swiftly gotten it chopped off. And so mm -hmm. I think everybody's hunkered down right now and a little bit afraid to. Uh, be too vocal about these sorts of things, but you know, I, I think people people notice uh, when things don't work, and I suppose we can learn from that, sort of like an anti-doctrine, perhaps uh, at, at the very least. But for we also need a positive doctrine, like what does work, and I think uh, you know we we unfortunately have a bit of a a short list, I think, at the moment. But you know, <laughs> what well, some, something lot, to strive well, for. It's interesting because there's been so much well we're such a tiny part of history and there's been so many things that have happened in the past that are analogous to, you know, the fight for survival in Globo Homo, right? So yeah. that this stuff has already largely been written about a million times. It's simply a matter of plucking out 
the most useful, most practical little bits and kind of just creating a little bit of momentum for those ideas gradually over time. I am a big, yeah. I'm a big and big opposition of like the David Koresh like, uh, uh, type, hey, everybody come here and listen to me speak out of this book stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't think that really works. Uh, oh, it, it didn't, it, it, it it didn't actually work. It didn't work with Jesus. Uh, his his doctrine was spread later on through far different methods than his direct evangelical, uh, evangelism, right? So I, I think it, it's just a matter of taking good ideas and having smart people that agree on them just keep pumping them out like little beacons. And eventually yeah. they grab on, and the good ones stick, and the the bad ones cause failures, right? So, sure. uh, yeah, I, I was going to say, there's this like weird desire to have like the perfect solution up front. Um, a bad counterinsurgency doctrine is not going to keep us from being successful in a counterinsurgency mission. You know, the knowledge is there. What I would say to people is, everything you know that you need to succeed has probably already been put into print at some form. Uh, across the various topics that could be of relevance to any kind of dissident mindset. I mean, the work on economics that you need to extrapolate the lesson that's useful to you right now, it exists somewhere. You know, you don't need to have like this perfect solution for it. It's almost like you need to be able to take a good enough solution to it and through the power of gravitas and cohesion, move in a positive direction as quickly as you can and as effectively as you can. So, You'll never see like our organization waiting for the perfect mission, waiting for the perfect solution up front. You know, um, teams that do that, that say, hey, you know, well, the problem with this plan is that I'm not going to be able to communicate very well because of radio limitations or whatever. That's when the commander goes next. OK, what's the next team think about it? Oh, yeah, we'll make it work, sir. Like we'll, we'll get in there. and We'll figure it out. You know, here's the here's our here's our contingency planning for that. And here's ways we can troubleshoot and we'll make effective comms uh, if we have to. You don't need like the perfect solution to get moving in the right direction. So this kind of doctrinal component of all this, I mean, it probably already exists. I mean, you don't really need more than Mao to understand uh, insurgency. Like it doesn't really get any better than that. I mean, yeah, Lutwak and guys like that have added really good insight to that problem set. And there's little things you can extrapolate from Galula and Che even. But that doesn't mean that Mao needs to get better for you to use it. You just use it and like take it and cater it to your needs. It's really that cohesion that old Hickory is talking about that, that makes that possible. Because when you don't have that cohesion, those inadequacies that exist inevitably in any one piece of doctrine are going to tear you apart at the seams. You're going to have problems with them as opposed to just moving past it. Well, given that you guys are coming from a military background, uh, and, and I do believe you both have a lot of uh, very insightful things to say and contribute, um, at some point you may want to actually put those those thoughts to writing, maybe you already have. Uh, but there, there are sites out there for guys like you that I think do have some contributions to, to be made from a dissident perspective. Um, don't know what you guys think about veterans today. A lot of people have uh, some suspicions about their origins, uh, but there have been some interesting people on there talking about some of these topics. Uh, and then one of the ones I've sort of stumbled upon, it's run by Matt Bracken. He's kind of an author, but former, um, I think, Marine uh, as well. Uh, he he runs the Western Rifle Shooters Association, and there's a lot of vets on there talking about uh, sort of the the fight against Clopo Homo's old hickory would, would say and, and I would say as well uh, and the challenges they're 
coming from a veteran's perspective. I don't know if you guys have ever seen those or, or seen those types of groups or have any thoughts on that, but do you think there's anything to be made from veterans uh, writing about their experiences and applying it to the American experience? JT, you want to take that one first? I mean, yeah, I definitely do. I, I don't see why we would just disregard. I mean, there's a tendency in our, in our, whatever you would call our extended community to kind of just dismiss military experience as some sort of puppet um, career that was done for the interests of an enemy completely. Everything you did was for the enemy and it was an entire waste of time as if throughout those decades, a lot of valuable lessons weren't learned and, and people didn't extrapolate success out of bad situations, which I can promise you has happened more times than we could probably rehash, uh, you know, on a show like this. So I think it's really naive to just dismiss um, the military application of power uh, as it is an overall topic uh, to just dismiss that um, by people who've lived it and done it. Because at the end of the day, all political problems are power problems, all kind of influence problems and, and your station in life and your grievances are all power problems. And the military specializes in applying power in a very specific way, sometimes in very indirect and unique ways in others. And so you've got a very unique opportunity right now where we're on the tail end of three wars that don't really seem to have an end in sight. And you've got a lot of guys with a lot of experience and they're not very happy with the way that things are going uh, back home. And so instead of just dismissing that entire community, I don't understand why we would do that. Uh, I think it's in our best interest to tap into it. And I mean, yeah, you're, you're going to run into a lot of guys who serve who are really just flag waving patriots. They're civic nationalists, you know, it's their thing and that's what they, they want to do it for. And I mean, that that's been a thing throughout, all of history. I don't, you know, this isn't like some roadblock to success for, for people that think like we do. I mean, civic nationalism is not like a new concept. So, you know, we can use these things to our advantage and there's definitely a lot of uh, natural dissidents in the special operations community because I mean, like I said, you know, like old Hickory was talking about, and I've been talking about, I mean, we're trained to think through the problem at both angles, you know, like your, your job is to train someone who's a dissident and therefore, because that's your job, your job is also to train someone who is going up against a dissident. And really all the missions that we do across the full spectrum, whether it's, you know, counterterrorism, unconventional warfare, you know, even nuclear counterproliferation, all these like very diverse mission sets that we'll run into, it really kind of all boils down to those two core competencies. And that's kind of what the basic skill set is gravitationally pulled back towards is that understanding that core power dynamic between the, the less powerful and the more powerful and they're jockeying for power in, in a battle space. And how do we fit into that and how are effective actions taken by both sides uh, and how are interests, you know, calculated and achieved and what are the decision points and lines of effort that need to be done to make a successful campaign plan, ha campaign plan happen. I mean, that's all very useful stuff. You know, this is a useful skill set. And uh, I, I totally agree. And, and just if I can interject real quick, I hope I didn't give you the impression that I was dismissive of what those. No, guys not at all. Had, no, had I've run into yeah. this myself. Okay. Yeah, for years. No, no, this is not. No, definitely not. I, I, I think um, what you said was right on. Um, and I just want to. I talk to people a lot about this, and they're and they're like, "Oh, well, you know, I mean, if you're a vet, you're just like a tool of Zog." And I'm like, "Okay." It's such a well, dumb talking point. That, that's it's, 
yeah. it's really it, it's just not useful, right? I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, we can we can kind of extrapolate. We're all points. tools of Zog. <laughs> do you pay your taxes? Do you follow the rules? I mean, look, we're all pretty much slaves. It, it, like the, the notion that you know somebody in the military is more of a tool. Yeah, okay, maybe you're actually more kinetic in nature, but like, look. We're part of the machine, and we need to learn. Yeah, I funded other. Zog when I submitted my tax returns last month. I mean, <laughs> pretty much. I just, yeah, I just yeah. tell people, like, look, you know, like Old Hickory said, you've got the martial tradition going back in your bloodline, probably, you know, as far back as people can remember, like oral, the oral tradition as far back as it goes. That's what we have praised. It's what we have held on a pedestal. Those are the type of people that we celebrate. And if you go back through all the ancient cultures, you know, the names that you remember from them were those guys. So to expect us to all of a sudden just kind of flip that on its head and, and, and dismiss that, which I'm not saying we do, but a lot of people in, in the community of, you know, dissident political activity tend to do that because they're so disenfranchised with the way in which their perceived enemy has taken control of their institutions. And they're absolutely correct. But the correct answer is not to just dismiss entire populations of people with successful skill sets. It's to right. bring them in and, and extrapolate utility out of them. That's that's kind of my takeaway. Yeah. What, what do you see as the future of SF and SOF uh, as the United States sort of pivots away from activity in the Middle East? Uh, you know, it really it looks like the war in Afghanistan is is pretty much dead. The war in Iraq is uh, sporadic and mostly dead. Um, there's talk of Africa being the next sort of hotspot and maybe even uh, uh, Colombia and Venezuela being hotspots. But, you know, uh, w- where do you see the SF and the SOF going? Um, you know, will there be more calls for relaxing uh, entrance requirements? Will there be a, more of a pivot to Asian theaters? Um, and, you know, in your experience, do you think it, it'll go in a, in a more positive direction as things seem to heat up in the Pacific theater or do you, you know, do you foresee more of like the similar misuses and misjudgments of um, special forces coming from, from the DC class? Well, I definitely think you're going to see more Africa. Uh, Africa has actually been really busy. Uh, I, I don't really want to get into the details of it, but a lot busier than most Americans would, would really know unless they, they were really paying attention. Yeah, you know it's a it's a really big continent. It's super strategically important for probably America's biggest economic, political adversary, which is China. Um, right now, uh, China's fast at work there. Islamists are fast at work there. I mean, America just has a lot of. I I don't want to say strategic interest, right? Because America is not chasing uh, rare earth minerals in Africa. They are trying to protect the dollar hegemon. So they are getting pulled into it rather than aggressively entering into it the way China would, right? So there's kind of a difference in approach there. But so, yeah, Africa is going to be a big one. And in terms of force quality, you're going to continue to see a faster life cycle for guys in all of SOF, all, all soft units and uh, special forces included, right? They're going to come in younger and they're going to leave earlier than they have in the past. And I think that cycle is going to continue for some time until there's a major change in the capabilities of the, the combat troops of the military. Meaning uh, at some point they realize like, hey, it's inefficient to try to field this many people in this many places simultaneously. And when that happens, I think you might see a little bit of a return to uh, previous standards. But 
I just kind of want to remind everybody that despite Uncle Sam being massively powerful um, and having sort of a historic, uh, uh, I guess, length of time for power projection across the world, uh, it, it has cycled, right? So soft hasn't always been super awesome. It's gone through periods of lax standards in the past, right? And then it's gotten much better. I, I would actually argue that Iraq 2 made soft better and had it just kind of shut off around 2008, uh, you would have probably seen one of the best soft units ever fielded in history, possibly the best, just because you got that sort of stress simulation or stress stimulus there. Uh, it was really extreme and it was really fast and it forced like a really strong adaptation. Um, but what happened was we kind of gained that advantage and that experience and those skills. And then we just kept doing it. And eventually it's just like you never took a break between sets and you just keep destroying yourself, you know, over and over. So I think eventually that's going to happen. It's going to see it's going to see the end of its life cycle and then it'll start climbing back up again. But I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it does. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think some people uh, in our circles have seen the, the recent articles um, regarding like the, uh, the U.S. Marine Corps is at least there's talk of radically shifting its, you know, its combat utilization. They're talking about taking away the tanks from the Marine Corps and all this other stuff as they pivot towards some kind of um, island hopping battle on the horizon in the Pacific. Uh, do you, you know, if there was some kind of major flare up in the Pacific, do you think that um, special forces doctrine would change dramatically or would it you know, be applying the same principles to just a, a new conflict? I think you're going to see you ideally you would see a return more back towards the origin period. So the forties, fifties right. and sixties, right? So the, the U S soft would be in the position of challenging a uh, great power, uh, through force multipliers by, with, and through indigenous populations in Southeast Asia. The Philippines is a great example, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, um, the places that we've been before, <laughs> right? So you, you're going to see more of a return back to that perspective rather than, oh, by the way, you are doing counterinsurgency and your country is the occupying force, right? So, right. Well, I think you would see a little bit of a departure from the Petraeus, um, the Petraeus model. And I think you would see, like, the Marine Corps would be smart to start getting rid of its armored uh, formations to, to some degree at least and get light and mobile and flexible, right? Because in that kind of environment, that's what you have to be. I mean, you, right. you have to be able to get guys on a plane to their destination in 13 to 20 hours and and start operating quickly because that's how fast uh, social phenomena uh, like insurgencies and counterinsurgencies work. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, for all the positives and negatives of the Marine Corps, I will say that it seems like they have the most leeway to be creative and dynamic in their thinking. And the Army seems to be very sluggish and slow, uh, probably because it's massive, right? <laughs> so, um, And it has a huge tail. The, the Marine Corps doesn't have nearly as long a tail as the Army, so all of its processes are more abbreviated or uh, you know, simpler to, to get through than with the army, which has, you know, God, we probably have more people in dental clinics, uh, on a Monday than the Marine Corps has in combat power. So, 
uh, not not to denigrate Marine combat capability. That's not the point I was trying to make. They're great, but um, you know that's just to show the scale difference between the two organizations. Well, the Army, the U.S. Army, meets the classical definition of an army. It had, you know, it's much more than just combat troops. Right. It, it is about maintaining supply lines. It's about maintaining support staff. It's about it's about you know maintaining a, a, a combat troop with you know what would you say the scale is sometimes anywhere from 10 to 20 people in various jobs that support one combat soldier yeah i think it's a 50 to one or something like that now i haven't looked at the stats it's crazy um especially now because we have relatively small numbers of combat troops on deployment so you know when you say when (laughs) when they say we're going to put uh 50 special forces on the ground in syria or something i mean it's i mean that, that's actually there's a massive number of people behind them not in syria right that's what, that's what you call it yeah phrase i mean that i mean you know adam and hank have remarked on this that um you know it, it is peculiar how we we phrase the utilization of special forces on special forces on the ground or special forces operations and you know it makes it seem like okay, there's just 400 guys, and that's all we're expending. When really, there, you know, it's it's a multi-million-dollar. If it goes on for more than a year or two, it's a multi-billion-dollar operation, just to maintain, you know, four or five hundred guys actually doing real-time operations. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I, I think that I, it used to be the phrase the phraseology was military advisor in the Vietnam era. You know, we were dropping military advisors. Uh, some of the first guys on the ground, and they were uh, basically special forces. Um, and you know, w- when we were getting involved with uh, the Kurds in Syria, the first time that uh, you know Obama had to talk about it, he referred to them as military advisors. And for anyone who was kind of somewhat versed in in history, or you know, came from a different, more realistic thought perspective, it's like, oh, okay, so we're doing special operations inside of syria with kurdish soldiers right you know it's very it's 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 sort of an interesting double speak where he's telling the people who know what that means probably the people who need to know that this is what we're doing but to the american public it makes it seem almost like a humanitarian mission oh we're we're, we're sending advisors we're sending uh peacekeepers that you know that kind of um repertoire of phraseology it's interesting that that actually ties back into some things that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, the subordinate commands to the president, which is the commander in chief, obviously, the subordinate commands, they have an interest in de- deploying troops, too. And, and I don't mean that necessarily maliciously. They they all think they have the best plan. Right. And their guys right. are the best, they're the best trained, they're best equipped. So the plan that they like is the one that features them at the front. Right. But they also understand the politics of putting you know, a Green Beret on the ground or some other soft force on the ground. So they are also pushing up language to the top. And it's like, look, when we write this plan, when we propose it, we're not going to say Green Beret. We're going to say military advisor, right? So we're not going to say combat advisor. We're going to, what's the most neutral term we can use to make the president fight on this plan? Right. Right. And I know they do this because we do this at every level because we want we think our mission's great. Right. And our idea is great. So that whole system, it's uh, that kind of weird thing I was talking about earlier where everybody just kind of gravitates towards the cheese constantly. 
that system is so pervasive and it is a system like that's the that's how it works right so when i see stuff like that in press conferences i just kind of laugh because i <laughs> i'm like man i i know exactly how this evolves right so it is kind of funny uh, um, in an ironic way i guess i, I have a I have a kind of a related question about the admissibility of some of these operations to the public. Uh, and I would imagine uh, that you guys can't comment on a lot of this, which I completely understand. Uh, but I'm asking this seriously because I have, and my co-hosts have a lot of negative things to say about the CIA, but there is part of me that still, and I used to be much more like this, but that still believes that there does have to be a part of your, let's just call it national security strategy that is not out in the open. Uh, now, the the question I guess I have for you guys is, do you believe that the CIA, for example, or any organization like that in any country should just stick to spying? And should the the kinetic operations stick to the military? Well, I can comment on this with pretty open source accessible vignettes that anybody can look up and it, it's part of our nation's history and there's books written about it. So anytime that an intelligence agency has been given the lead on some sort of paramilitary you know, operation, the first thing that happens is they do a feasibility assessment on their own and they say, man, it'd be really nice if we had some military support. <laughs> so what I, I mean, it basically turns into what you're saying. The second part of your question, it turns into that by default. I mean, like, um, I mean, you know, the intelligence apparatus of any nation should, should be, you know, dedicated to that, to, you know, what our country calls, you know, strategic foreign intelligence. And every nation should, you know, has these things. Every nation shouldn't have to apologize for having these things. And it's just a big game that's played. And now in the modern era with technology and kind of the openness of, of what we know about each other, you know, it's more of a, you know, friendly chess game than it used to be in the past. But when it comes to the, the military side of things, <clears throat> I mean, like Korea is a good example. Korea was supposed to be originally the first phases were supposed to be like a CIA operation. And the CIA was like, I can't do that. And, you know, basically, okay, well then special forces went in. Bay of Pigs was, you know, different. You know, the feasibility assessment came back in a different way and it didn't work. And then Afghanistan kicked off and, you know, it was kind of a unique manner in which it happened, but, I'm talking about post 9-11, not, not the 80s when SF was involved there with, you know, intelligence agencies. But 9-11 happened and it was one of those things where like, <clears throat> well, as the Central Intelligence Agency, we, you know, we have to be involved, obviously, and nobody disagreed. But never once was it considered that they would do this themselves. So it was kind of a, you know, Rumsfeld, you can read books about Rumsfeld process on this. He basically convened a, a room full of generals and said, tell me how fast you can accomplish this military objective that I have written on this board behind me. <clears throat> and whoever gave him the quickest, you know, answer basically got the mission. I mean, they had to prove it, but that's kind of the way that it continually goes. So I don't think that, you know, the kind of the public perception might be that intelligence agencies are always, you know, running around doing paramilitary operations on their own and in the shadows and whatnot. And it's really more of an incestuous relationship across all the, the kind of global homo instruments that we have, if you will, <laughs> it's really more incestuous than that. Like, I mean, almost everybody's fully on board with all the stuff that we're doing at almost every level. So it's kind of like, 
getting tapped into the easy the easy button in each scenario. I mean, it's just you you see a lot of military operations that you know you see a lot of civilian agencies and you know even Department of State will be like on the ground doing things right along alongside military advisors or combat advisors or whatever you want to call them. It's just like a complete concerted effort for everybody to get in on the game. Wow. Well, I, I'll be remiss if I don't ask this. Uh, what is the DIA's role, the Defense Intelligence Agencies? They're, they're kind of a mysterious organization, I think, to the public, especially because nobody right, makes any movies about them, but they probably got a, you know, billions of dollars there's in almost, budget. There's almost no books written about them. I mean, we, we were requ- some people requested that we do a show on the DIA, and we looked into it and found very little available information on the DIA enough to make a, a full-length show about the subject. Well, the the DIA came about as a response to, if you recall, the 9/11 Commission and and basically the the recognition the recognition that all of the collective intelligence apparatus of the U.S. government failed to synchronize their knowledge in advance of 9/11. So we need another one <laughs> to so, make it so even more complicated. Do, yeah. So what we're going to do is put a director of national intelligence in charge of all of it, and then we're going to have an official DOD, Department of Defense, you know entity underneath him the Mm. defense intelligence agency that's more accountable to both the beltway and the people uh you know Mm. sounds good on paper but it's almost like all that did was introduce another chess piece on the board for this kind of concerted you know full frontal attack on all directions that we're just going to continually do is the solution ever to just reduce the size of the pentagon or is it always the opposite well, you see, it's a meta game, right? Because when the issue was clearly that intelligence wasn't being shared between various agencies for a variety of reasons, which we don't have to get into here, but then it was a game. How do we use this as the pretext for X power grab, right? So, well, why doesn't why doesn't the DOD have this? Why well, why doesn't the why don't we have another office over the CIA when it comes to human intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll just make this DNI thing, and then he'll be over in charge of all of them, right? So instead, <laughs> it be- instead of how do we make information easier to get from large organization to large organization, it became how do I use this as an opportunity to get a position, right? It it really is how it always works. Yeah, so, the um. I think the the movie's called uh, The Good American, but it's about Bill Binney's story at the NSA. And he talks about his troubles with the organization because he's kind of this math genius guy that really is just sort of your, your uh, he's a West Virginian actually. And he um, he's just kind of your, your straightforward, I you know want to do my job well. And, you know, he writes his reports and he gives them to his superiors and expects them to follow them according to the, the proper recommendations and it just doesn't always work that way and he talked about how after 9-11 these really gross individuals just suddenly started showing up um basically just with grins on their faces talking about how wonderful this whole thing is and how they're going to get more funding and that's what it boiled down to and that's why he ended up leaving because his recommendations were we don't need to, uh, which is what they ended up doing, by the way, we don't need to inflate the data uh, operation size and scope, uh, which became PRISM, which became what Snowden uh, blew the whistle on. Uh, we don't need to do that because that ends up actually confusing the intelligence analyst job because there's just too much junk to sift through. We actually need to focus uh, on 
identifying the the key nodes of where the threats are coming from and actually dedicate the resources to those it's sort of the, the, the more of like actually what you guys do as opposed to maybe what the conventional forces do uh in order to catch the stuff and he had the numbers to back it up i mean he had a lot of um empirical evidence uh, numerical evidence to show that some of their filters could have caught some of these uh, 9-11 hijackers uh and it was just completely ignored because they wanted to increase their budget uh, and it's just it's really sad it's a sad story because of, uh, these guys uh, and he had uh, a few people that joined him in this attempt to advocate for a more streamlined approach to the nsa they ended up getting uh not only like thrown out but they were then um because what he did was he escalated it. He he went, and this is to what Old Hickory was saying, like you don't want to do this necessarily, uh, even though the, the story did come out, but I'll bet you the average person doesn't doesn't know about it. Uh, but what he did was he filed uh, a fraud, waste, and abuse claim uh, with uh, whatever that budget office is in D.C. against the NSA. And then at that point, the FBI ended up raiding him while he was in the shower, nonetheless. And it, it's just, it just goes to show you, you can't piss off the wrong people uh, and how corrupt a lot of this stuff is. So um, I'm sure there's good things out there too, but the, the trend of just the, the ever-increasing military budgets doesn't seem to go away and and the sad part of it is and i wouldn't even be against that by the way if if it was resulting in increases in our uh, ability to have a, a strong defense posture or, or national security but it doesn't seem to actually be helping uh, in, in the case of the nsa it, it seemed to have been doing the opposite yeah that's a that's a perfect example of how the system consumes the dissenters right <laughs> it's a perfect example and and it really, it's and people get mad about it, which I understand. I mean, they should be mad. I mean, this is clearly a, a guy who really believes in his job and doing the right thing. But you have to learn the lesson of that too, right? When the when you when the mole sticks his head out of the ground, it gets whacked. That's how it works. So if you want to make a difference, you have to find a better way. Because uh, you know, honestly, I I remember this story. I remember the concept of what you're describing, but I don't remember the guy's name. I can't picture him in my head at all. So I mean, it, it's got you got to have better results than that when you go for the go for the glory, I guess. What do you ultimately think the uh, the, the culture in the United States around the special forces will will come to? You know, there's. Every year, there's several films and uh, web series and shows made about um, various branches of the special forces. Do you think that this will sort of increase and hit critical mass at some point, or do you think that um, it's it's just going to become uh, sort of a standard part of American culture is to um, fictionalize and, and glorify real? branches or real life branches of the of the special forces um you know I, I think there was a show on tv of maybe one of these network shows about seals and um there's a recent netflix film about i think an australian special operator but you know it, it feels like there there's now a normalization um in, in the culture around this that this is just accepted that there's a you know global international operations and um, we're just going to kind of fictionalize it a little bit and, and, um, and address it in a way that it's normal and that you should just get used to it. I think it's culturally, it's become the new cowboy genre and it, it's so crazy to me because 
I'll see the commercials for these video games and it's got these guys in there and they've perfected like every piece of equipment, every gun, every helmet cover, whatever, you know, it's like, wow, you spent a lot of time like copying the stereotypical white Navy seal, uh, TV show thing or whatever. (laughs) It's, it's really unbelievable down to the, the weird ATVs that sometimes get used in like very unique, like they have, they have really turned this into the cowboy genre where this is like America's, uh, good guy, but rebel outlaw character that he gets to clap for. Right. And it's very fun to watch it for the average American, because in their mind, they don't see the background noise, right? That to them, this is a, some hardcore badass dude that's out there killing the bad guys. And, you know, they don't see any of the <laughs> the stuff that we've talked about on this show for sure, and they don't want to see it. And that really plays into the hands of the propagandists who's who can understand the natural appeal of, you know, I, I don't mean to, I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but there's just not that many masculine figures in the American zeitgeist these days, right? And this is That's like one true. of the last ones where you're allowed to be like the tobacco spitting jacked tattooed bearded badass guy and uh, for the whole country right at least in the video game so i think americans are really attracted to that concept and it distracts them from what 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 how these things are being utilized and you know why has this become such a big part of the american culture now right it's you know 20 consecutive years of this stuff and this is where we're at where we have seven-year-olds playing these characters in a video game that are like almost exact replicas of people that are deployed right now. So um, it's just, it's kind of bizarre to be well, honest. It, it, to, to use a Chomsky phrase, it's manufacturing consent, uh, if nothing else. I mean, the, and the CIA is known to do this. I don't know if uh, the other branches are as active. I'm sure they do have some participation. I think there's evidence for that uh, in Hollywood and perhaps the video games as well. But it, it, it generates a, a culture that accepts perpetual warfare. And I think people, when they they see the images on the screen, whether it's the game or the movie, and then they read the the article about the actual real life thing, they're like, oh, okay, that's normal. Uh, It's not normal. It's not normal to have a ambiguous, nebulous enemy that never goes away and constantly being told that we need to fight to defend our freedom when we're losing our freedoms, you know, by the day and we actively have an invasion that comes into the country via the southern border uh, on a daily basis, and that's not being defended. Cognitive dissonance is a thing, and it it would not be so easy for them to blithely uh, wave that away were not for all the distractions that the Netflix and the video games pump out. And I I, I do think it is the, the the real power of the the American system, it's a very seductive one and it doesn't have to rely upon the more blunt instruments that the Soviets had to rely upon to control their population. America controls its subjects through seduction, through lust and, and sloth and envy and all these horrible things. And it's, um, it's very powerful. It's very good at it. Yeah. It's like the, the liberal siren, right? You don't realize you've been there for, you know, a whole year, you know, you're you're in a daze, right? You're yeah. just getting all the things that you think you want and that you think are good for you, and you can't really notice what's going on transpiring around you. And 
you know, I think too that we we talked a little bit earlier about you know the deeper powers that be, and it, it seems like one of the few things that doesn't get counter signaled regularly is the American kind of like boots on the ground adventure soldier guy, and even though he meets all the criteria of the I don't want to say I I guess the cultural Marxist memes right. He, he checks all the blocks as, like, who they would oppose, but they don't really oppose this guy very often. So uh, I think that's interesting, too. Uh, it's something that I've kind of noticed over the years is you can have these kind of caricatures portrayed in video games without any real mainstream commentary on them. Um, but that's not true for just your average Joe guy, uh, I guess white guy, right? That, that guy is maligned to infinity. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And I, I, this has been pointed out by a lot of people before, too. But like the tools of Globo Homo are kind of – they have a shell around them, right? So – or the more overt ones. I think we're all tools to an extent, but they protect that, right? You've also got to recruit people into it. So the the culture, the, the culture around all this that you all are talking about um, is engineered towards generating – people that are interested in and want to partake. So I think probably the, the seals are most famous for using popular media, TV movies um, to their advantage for generating, not just support for their community, but new recruits into it. People see movies about seals and they want to be a seal because that movie was awesome. Uh, They famously made a movie with actual seals as the actors. Um, I want to say like eight years ago. I can't remember when. I think it was called Act of Valor or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's <laughs> the one. Yeah, they're, they're they're really. I mean, they'll they'll admit to you why they do this. They'll say, "Well, we want to, you know, generate recruit. Like recruiting is an issue for all of this. We inspire the next generation." Yeah, exactly. So you've got to kind of. This is kind of one of those very safe uh, lines of effort that that the establishment can take. It. It can say that it's rewarding its heroes for their sacrifices they've made when in reality it's in, you know, ensuring consent among the population and generating new recruits for its machine. And I know I was critical earlier about the, the commonplace dissident critique of veterans in mass, but there's definitely some truth to the fact that they need bodies to fill uh, roles for, for what they want to accomplish abroad at the end of the day that they, they need the bodies. So right. if you go into that unwittingly, if you don't realize that and you just, assume that it's all going to be, you know, something that it's not, that's kind of dangerous. Um, so what I would say is, you know, I, I think we got to kind of admit those things. And, um, it, it's interesting to me that like, uh, the, the remake of there's, there's not a lot of movies made about special forces specifically, if we want to be honest. Um, and I don't think the special force community has a problem with that. Um, John Wayne's The Green Braids is the most famous one by far. Um, and then I think they made one maybe a few years ago about the 9-11 team, the, the team that went in uh, right after 9-11 in, into Afghanistan. To, oh, to with the Mexican guy? <laughs> yeah, and that's what I was going to say was notice how the Hollywood representation of these guys is going to shift to include all sorts of your average melting pot Americans now. Because I can guarantee you, um, you know, 100%. 
from firsthand knowledge that the team that that movie's about is top to bottom white redneck southern boys. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's a very like yeah. these are big. You know, like, these are they're like these forest big, riders, you know. <laughs> yeah, these, these are like big jacked, you know, ranch hands growing up. They became they joined the army and found themselves in Afghanistan. But the Netflix adaptation of it looks like uh, mm. some sort of boy band incarnation. And uh, you know, I mean, of course, they've got the big hyper masculine Thor character playing the lead, but. You know, in reality, what it's doing is it's also it's just these little bitty incremental steps that the entertainment industry takes to achieve uh, objectives for the elite. Uh, it's just a continual, well-concerted, extremely successful. I mean, you almost have to admire like the efficiency of it, but it's 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 done on purpose. None yeah. of this is accidental to generate money. It's not it's not just a financial venture. Um, they can make money in all kinds of different ways, but a lot of the times the audience doesn't get what it really wants because it would be counterproductive to the narrative that Hollywood wants to achieve. So you've got to like kind of look at these cultural, you know, um, like I want to say initiatives that are being thrust upon you and like see them for what they are and be honest about them. I think too, that, that when you look at that from the other angle, right. And you talked about this earlier, you have to look at it from both sides if they need it to recruit, then that provides your opportunity right there. So once right. you get your in, then you have that little bit of shielding there because they can't attack it too hard or they delegitimize the tool they have to use, right? And we, especially with the military, this is extremely clear. Even Rachel Maddow can't go on the baby killer rant, right? She can't do it. In hmm. fact, she'll probably be the first one to put a flag bandana on her head. Or with the with the LGBT flag or whatever on it too, but you know that's that's your shield or a small social shield that you get. So it provides opportunities for you too if you're a creative and you and you're looking to exploit opportunities and weaknesses in the system. I mean, there is a there's like a yin to every yang, right? And if you're creative, then you'll find those and you'll take advantage of them and not just dismiss it all as you know. Oh well. You know, it's like the famous, well, you know who else drank water, right? So, yeah, uh, Hitler, right? Well, you can't, you cannot be a thinker like that. You have to be more dynamic.
can just follow and push around I'm not the fucking needle in the haystack that you finally found This ain't no free rent, come up with your tent, yeah, tie me down I'm not a bus ride, you can hop inside and just roll away clean Not the wheel on the wagon you wanna break, cause I hold up the wheel for the team I'm not the gold watch in the new truck that you scheming to check out Unless you looking to check out What a mess now, come on Let's go.